power on. The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Technica podcast feed. I almost, whew, I almost got that fart in, but <laughs> on the recording. <laughs> anyway, ooh, the man of tomorrow here, Sabzu, the rated R radio star, and we have got a Sovereign Tech X, and when I say we, I don't just mean me and the listeners, I mean Mrs. Ellen Sovereign. Woo! 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, bring it up. But anyway, we Sorry, just... Sorry, I was trying to do a little MJ there. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. I love MJ. Yeah, <laughs> so, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> we, uh, well, we just got done watching a very weird movie. We got some great topics we're going to get into, folks. Uh, no aliens this time around. That might disappoint some people. Aww. I know. I, I know. like aliens. I know. Me too. I, I mean, if, if they exist. But anyway, well, save that for other episodes. <laughs> But we just got done watching a very, very weird movie from 1991. It's a Canadian film. We won't hold that against it. Called Clear Cut. And uh, it's it's about a, uh, well, a First Nations uh, land dispute, basically. You know, in, in the modern era for 1991, anyway. A uh, bit of a horror film. I mean, this, was, this was wild. I, I had never heard of this movie before. Has Graham Greene in it, though, who's famous for being in Dances with Wolves, arguably one of the most famous First Nations films ever made. Uh, I, yeah, I, I was, I was stunned. I'm not going to give anything away on it. I mean, do you want to just say, you know, kind of an abstract of how you felt about this movie? Very good. Very good. Yes, I felt very good about this movie. Did Even though it was a horror-esque movie. Sure. I think the messaging was very positive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was... It was pretty brutal <laughs> in some parts of it, uh, but I, I hear you. Uh, I, I think I think you got some First Nations people that got to say some things they've wanted to say for a good long while and do so on celluloid, which I enjoyed. Um, yeah, and also I think this whole movie was a metaphor to explain how they deal with their own feelings. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe how they perceive things is very different from how white people would. Sure, sure, fair, yeah. Um, I mean, I even, like, appreciated a, a very, I thought a very well-done depiction of a sweat lodge. Um, like, especially in the, in the beginning. Um, yeah, it, it, it just, it, it felt legit. You know, it, it felt respectful. And, and I, I really, really enjoyed that. I mean, this is a super rare movie. It's part of the reason I'm bringing it up. We don't need to do a full review on it, but I just... You know, get it on people's radar uh, because movies like this. I feel like it's a perfect time to do this movie review ah. because you know it's practically Halloween. Yeah, yeah, practically. Um, the moon is full. Yeah, that is a weird looking moon. I gotta say, uh, <laughs> it's glowing eerily above us. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, you know, horror movies are always a good time. Uh, and and part of the shall we say the festivities of Halloween. We're actually going to talk about horror movies later on, um, so just giving you a little bit of a preview here. And perhaps, much like you would kind of suggesting, Ellen, that with clear cut horror movies can actually be a very healthy, very good thing. 
uh, for people to experience, which I think a lot of people would feel the exact opposite. But we can kind of save that conversation for later. Anything else quick you want to get out about the movie Clear Cut? Yeah, well, I think the overall message without giving away the plot of the movie is that... um, you know, it's important to spend time thinking about what it is that you really want. And sometimes the first answer that you come up with is, you know, something that could cause yourself harm if you were to pursue it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's helpful to just follow that train of thought to its logical conclusion and then realize that's not what I actually wanted. It was, you know, this other resolution of whatever kind or right like there's this goal underlying everything that i want but the way to get there that you know there's multiple different paths Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i love that um i said this over and over again over the years that the most important question i think that a person can ask themselves is what do i want but you've got to really know you know and i mean and and Part of this film is, you know, a person goes through a whole sweat lodge to try and get that answer, you know, try and figure out what do I really want. And as the chief tells him, don't be afraid of yourself. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, this is something that this this abstract notion of knowing what you really want. This is I mean, it's hard in in it's especially today. I mean, in 1991, it was bad enough. But like today, you know, you're you're distracted and frankly, mentally assaulted every single day, every, almost every second of every day, uh, to want something that someone else wants you to want, right? You know, advertising, whatever the fuck's happening on social media, you know, whatever it happens to be. And it's very hard, I think, to take the moment. I mean, I'll just say it. I think people would do themselves some good if they all went in a sweat lodge and, you know, had no distraction and... They had to encounter themselves. And like you said, like the chief said, you know, don't be afraid of yourself um, because you're going to meet yourself if there's no other distractions around. And yeah, and that's really the only way to get to that answer. Not not through a sweat lodge, but just by facing yourself and experiencing yourself. Is yeah, the only some way you, form of meditation. So, yeah, some, yeah, some kind of concentration on who and what you are is the only way you're going to be able to answer that question of what you want. Yeah, I think that's a great point to bring up. So... Uh, like I said, we're gonna we, we're gonna talk about horror movies. We're gonna talk about um, we're gonna talk about books. We've actually we're even gonna talk about relationships. We've we've got all kinds of wild subjects to get into in this little Cybertech X here. Wild, and wild. It will make it wild. But start it off to get it really wild. You know what I think? I mean, this is like the wildest thing anybody can do: read books. That's wild and <laughs> That's crazy. Wild and crazy. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Everybody wants to be a cat. So, <laughs> actually, that's funny. <laughs> You're wearing a cat t-shirt. Uh, it is. It's, is that Devin Townsend? It's Devin Townsend Snuggles t-shirt. I love it. I love it. Which, so, by the way, Snuggles is, even though Devin Townsend is traditionally an industrial or progressive rock musician, yep. he also makes ambient music. For yes. Me- for meditation. Yes. Which is what Snuggles is. Yes. And it's very, very good. Highly recommend it. Yeah, same, same. Yeah. Um, well, he's got a new album coming on the way. Yeah? He's writing it at the moment. Yeah. It's, it's called The Moth. Right. It's is going this to that be opera? a whole opera, apparently. Oh, man. Bring it on. I know. I thought, like, nothing could top Empath. Yeah, Because yeah. that... It, 
So you can't listen to Empath in, in bits and pieces. You have to listen to it in, in its entirety as a concept album mm-hmm. because it really creates its whole universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what he's describing about the Moth, I mean, it could be a really great competitor. Oh, I'm excited as fuck for this. Yeah, like, I, me too. I, I, I can't wait to hear this. All right, now wait. Now let me let me put these two subjects together quick. I want to ask you this before we get into talking about some books. Okay, let me put these two things together. Great music and a sweat lodge. And for me, the first thing that comes to mind is seeing Beast in Black at the Middle East <laughs> in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay, that's a great description of it i know i know it was a sweat lodge (laughs) it was a fucking sweat lodge uh yeah because the venue was literally this dingy basement room that holds like i don't know one two hundred people something like that yeah yeah and and the stage was really small but it was so fucking packed in oh yeah and and we're talking 500 people probably i think think well well, the max occupancy was 500 people wow and i look back and I mean, I thought that was a packed house. Uh, know, I guess back. it was. And I have some of the photos. Us. Yeah. Yeah. We must have been really close. Yeah. Um, so first off, folks, you can go on uh, my Instagram, and that's at Lord Sovereign, and you can see some of the the performance. You can see what we're talking about, what this place kind of looked like, and everything. But I think it's worth talking about. Uh, and I talked about it a little bit on uh, Patreon only Q and A. But never got your take on this, Ellen. No, I mean, and 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 you're and you're right. It's like a sweat lodge. I mean, it, it really it felt like you know I, I've over the years I've heard varying people, anthropologists, others who have you know said that like heavy metal concerts are no different than like Mithraic cult practices where you go into the cave and you experience the chants and whatever else, mm-hmm. but instead mm-hmm. you know now it's just heavy metal music and everything. And and actually, I think that's completely accurate and a good and wonderful thing. Um, but I, what I want to ask is like, you know, we saw Devin Townsend. That's why, I, that's how we're bringing this together. Yeah. We saw Devin Townsend over the summer uh, for dream Sonic with dream theater, which by the way, Holy shit. Finally, Mike Portnoy coming back to woo! dream theater. Woo. If there's anything to woo about, it's that. And they're writing a new album together. I know. Oh, this is going to be nuts. Because he, I mean, he was a major component of the writing team. Mm-hmm. He really was. Yeah. Uh, Portnoy is amazing. So I'm very excited for this. Anyway, so we'll have to go see them again. Yeah, I'm very happy for all of them that they were able to reconcile whatever differences they had. Yeah. Because it seemed like everybody really wanted that. Yes. Everybody in the band wanted to come back together again as friends. Yes. And I mean, I'll make it clear. Mike Mangini, who was doing the duties, filling in for uh, Portnoy for really a few albums now and concerts was fantastic like i'm not going to say he isn't yeah, but like portnoy, portnoy is just one of the greats as far as skin bashers go uh so you know i want to i want to make that clear anyway so okay so we saw this amazing concert over the summer dream sonic 2023 we saw uh we saw dream theater we saw devin townsend animals as leaders opening that thing up yep. which was a, just intense as fuck uh where would you rank that compared to beast in black seeing beast in black oh i i don't know that you can really compare the two experiences they're so different Ah. i mean first of all when we went to dream sonic we were sitting outside granted we were in that giant tent that was a bit of a sweat lodge itself (laughs) just on a bigger scale godzilla's scrotum stretched out (laughs) (laughs) almost made you spew your drink there Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it just really captured the humidity of the day inside yeah. that tent. Yes. But we were all sitting in rows, you know? Yeah. Like, we all were seated. We had room enough, at least. Yep. I mean, I was still sniffing the farts of the guy in front of me, but, like... Yeah, it was pretty know, gross. We, we had enough, <laughs> enough room <laughs> to, like, dance around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if the whole show was Devin Townsend, I would say, like... There's no way for me that that can be topped by any other metal artist. Even Beast in Black. Beast in Black has a very different energy, very different yes. message, yeah. different delivery. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like they're not on the same page. But Beast in Black has that, I mean, you've said it before, it's like a dance tempo. Yes. And this concert really reminded me of my rave days when I would go Woo. to... Other small venues, mm -hmm. you know, jam-packed, dark, damp, because there's, like, all the smoke machines, lasers yeah. going on, and, like, just super loud music and lights all night, like, people on drugs everywhere. <laughs> it was a really great time, and sure. I loved it. And I, you know, sometimes miss that energy, because there's not many other genres of music that capture that that really powerful and fast and, and just, like, high positive energy. Right. But I think Beast in Black got really close to it. Yeah. And that was what made it so fun for me. Like, you know, I, I really felt like it was almost the same. Wow, As, as okay. a rave, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely, you know, and, and, and I thought it was interesting that even uh, Janos, the lead singer for Beast in Black, Mm -hmm. which, you know, we would fit into a metal band, even a power metal band, perhaps. But, like, he specifically called out, like, he said, you know, are you a metal fan? And then he even said, are you a disco fan? And yes. I think he was right. It, same. And, and I think he was kind of letting the secret out, is that the secret to Beast and Black's, I mean, they have a lot of synth in their music. Mm -hmm. But, like, they do have somewhat of a unique sound, even, even though they spawned out of Battle Beast which is a little more traditional of a metal band. A little more. Uh, you know, and Battle Beast has a little bit of that synth and all, and the corniness and whatever, but, like, Beast in Black just turns it all up to, to you know, to 13. And and I think that's a secret. I think they're pulling kind of a Kiss, I Was Made for Loving You, you know, 79 Dynasty kind of affair, where they're, put, they're mixing in disco beats without you realizing it, because, like, they're using synth. And they speed it up, too. Yes, yeah. Like, it's... it's that speed that's just so perfectly matching yes. like a fast heartbeat right and the energy especially with Janos's voice like yes it's just through the roof it was so much fun yeah and and we were sweating so wet like every part of your body is just constantly wet it doesn't matter how yep. much you wipe it away yeah it's just you know like you're breathing in the the damp dampness of hundreds of other people's breaths yeah 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 so, and everybody's dancing. So the only thing that was different from a rave, I mean, besides the fact that there was, like, heavy metal guitar, yeah, um, there was a mosh pit yes. at, at this concert. And, like, frankly, I was annoyed by that. I know it's a controversial subject. Some people love mosh pits because, like, you get to let out that primal rage. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't necessarily feel like they... So some of their songs might encourage some amount of violence, but I don't think it's really, like, in the spirit of hatred no. or anything. I, I don't think mosh pits are a fit at Beast in Black. Yeah, yeah I, don't, yeah. I don't think that the people showing up there were really, like, you know, people who were carrying a lot of hatred in right. their hearts. 
like, it, this was a very positive group, a very, like, loving mm-hmm, group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I will say, you know, yeah, I, I felt like that was kind of out of place. Um, easily, as far as a metal show, like, yeah, it's one of the rare metal shows you can really dance at. You know, and we were dancing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know we're going to be catching Amaranth. I'm kind of curious if there's going to be kind of a similar, similar feel with that. Um, but yeah, we were dancing, and I mean, I think Beast in Black. Which you know, the reason I'm kind of talking about this is I've gotten a lot of people turned on to Beast in Black over Sovereign Tech's history because, like, their second album, you know, easily top three albums ever made in history. Like, it's yeah. it's so <laughs> good, you know, and and it never really clicked for me until I saw them live when I when I finally like got it like okay what is what's what is their magic like what are they doing how are they how do they sound so so fucking good and so unique like what is this sound and somehow they did the impossible because again the disco element was kind of the last ingredient that I was wondering about somehow they took manowar and mixed it with disco which would seem to be impossible in any metalhead's mind, right? Like, how the fuck can you do that? You know, because it's it's Manowar, the most metal metal band in history, and but they did it. You know, so, yeah. somehow they pulled that baby off and they put in the synth, and there we go, and we're and, and we're riding. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I gotta say, you know, and I've been to a lot of concerts, like, and and we've had other concerts that we've said like, oh no, that's the best one ever. I don't know. I can't think of anything that matches the energy of this show. I mean, even even when we saw Dragon Force, these guys just tore it apart. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to dance to Dragon Force. Yeah, it is. But it it's is. so easy to dance to Beast in Black. Yeah. You just can't help yourself. It's, it's like, contagious. Yeah. Yeah, though I'll tell you, the new Dragon Force music, I've heard a couple of the songs, and I think they're trying to go in that direction. I think they're realizing, oh, shit, this Beast in Black's the real deal. Even better. Well, true, true. That's fair. Herman Lee's one of the greatest guitarists of all time. So if he wants to bring in that magic, go for it. I'll I'll just say I think Beast in Black is going to make everybody a true believer. Woo! <laughs> that was very punny. Thank you. It's also my one of my favorite songs by them, yeah. if not my favorite. Yeah, I, I think same. that's like top of the list. Yeah, I it, amazingly certainly on From Hell with Love. It's the best song I think. And since that's the best album, I think by yeah by default you're right. It's their best song. Um, I'm with you on that. Uh, it's, it, was, it just makes you feel so empowered. You're like, yes. Yeah, I can do <laughs> anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I'm gonna show you all. <laughs> yeah. So if anyone here listening gets the chance to, I mean, I know plenty of listeners have listened to their albums, but if you get the chance to see them live, man, are you in for a fucking treat? I mean, they they are that good all right one critique one critique is it the synth yep you know what i'm gonna say don't you yep yep there is no keyboardist there like it's all pre-recorded it's all pre-recorded and i'm like no man like you're not a real metal band until you have a keyboardist yeah like remember when we went to see sticks yeah the keyboardist was the most entertaining part of the whole show he's, he's he's insane yeah uh and and yeah i mean most of the greatest of the greats will have a keyboardist and I mean, Deep Purple. We could go down the list, you know. Uh, even like Danger, Danger, a bunch of others. But yeah, that was that was disappointing that that was all pre-recorded. I mean, fuck, I don't know how they would have gotten another guy on the stage. But I know, like, they don't have. They're a four-piece. They don't have a keyboardist there, and and that's just kind of disappointing. I'd even have a guy just there 
just have a, you know, have a touring guy, you know, like even if he's not the session guy that records, um, you know, just have somebody that you bring on the road. That's disappointing. But anyway, that, that's a minor critique because the music is still just best shit ever done. Um, yeah, so much fun. All of the the members of the band were having a great time. Yes. They were being so funny. Oh, yeah. They were hilarious. Like, making faces at the crowd. Oh, yeah. oh such showmen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they were playing it right up to people's, you know, smartphone cameras <laughs> and everything. And it's so it's so compacted. Like you said, it's a goddamn sweat lodge. Uh, you know, I mean, you could get right in on it. You could get right in the guy's face. It was so, that was so great. I mean, that was, that was really, that, that is such a, I mean, not even because of the band. It was a unique show because of the venue and all that. But like, add in, if, you know, either one of or the greatest band ever. Yeah, it's, it's a magic moment. That's, that's all, that's all you can say. Uh, and it was great that they were, yeah, so interactive with everybody. Phenomenal. So. Yeah, very talented. Yeah, super talented. Just, just insane. Um. If you haven't listened to them yet, like, yeah, go, go get on it. <laughs> yeah, their music is addictive. I would say it's of that category. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know how many times I've listened to From Hell with Love, uh, <laughs> their third album. Now I was a little harsh on their third album, but after you gave it time, it's better. Yeah, I think the first time I listened to it, I I really didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But it's very dark. I mean, I, that's the name of the album, Dark Connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I listened to it a few more times, and yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a little more of the same, I think, mm-hmm. but it's still good. Right. It's still very good. It's got the same energy. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, that's a weird thing. I, we don't have to get into the subject, but it's a weird thing. A lot of the albums, I feel, that came out of the pandemic, that came out, like, were written during it, came out after, um, were not very good. And it's not because they were necessarily dark. It was just, I don't know, something happened there. I mean, it, we could get into world energy, but whatever like listen to the puzzle by devin townsend well you thought that was great (laughs) well i think that's another piece of what you're talking about um like if if you ever listen to any of the documentaries that he Mm -hmm. created around the the creative process of Mm -hmm. putting together the puzzle um he kind of talks about how like just the pandemic in general fed the creation of such a strange and convoluted album. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very non-traditional. And I think the album itself doesn't entirely make sense in, unless you listen to his um, commentary on it. Sure. Because that also came out of the pandemic. Sure. Like he was planning on doing something else, but then the pandemic happened and he's like, oh, well, let's go with this diversion yeah, right, let's go down that road that mm-hmm. was the energy he was feeling. I could believe that from him because I think he's really connected. He's very, uh, yeah, you know, to connected with his own emotions. Yes, and, and to, I would argue, sort of this, this ethereal energy <laughs> that, that I think musicians particularly, but artists in general, can kind of tap into. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, like, like Battle Beast album that came out at that time, I thought was weak. And I hate saying that because I thought, I, before that, every album they ever came out with was dynamite. You know, uh, Hailstorm, I thought, had a weak album coming out of all that. I could I could list off so many albums that came out, like, in 2021. I don't think it was that bad. I mean, yeah. it, was, it, it had some strengths. It was just slightly different from their usual style. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, yeah, I, again, I'm just listing off a few bands, you know. Mm-hmm. But then, 
get into 2022 or into 2023 and holy shit like like everything started picking right back up with a lot of a lot of bands they get audience feedback again well yeah right right and that's that's important that's really important but anyway so (laughs) while we're still on this theme of entertainment um what have you been reading lately ellen what what have you been you know, you have a little drive when you go to do the very important work that you do as an engineer. And I mean that. No, no, I mean that. It, it is. <laughs> I'm patting myself on the back here. You I should. Know, I know you listeners can't hear me do this. <laughs> <laughs> but you really should. You've earned it, okay? So, but, but you know, you have a good, you have a good lengthy drive. And, uh, and I know you get in some audiobooks here and there. What have you been listening to lately? Yeah, audiobooks. Um, I'm actually kind of grateful for my commute because... Well, I, I hate driving through traffic on the highway, but yeah. audiobooks definitely make it more tolerable. Sure. Um, and I feel educated. I feel like I'm able to indulge myself in a sort of fantasy world while I'm driving. You right. Know? Like, my mind goes to other places. Um, so it's it's a really great way for me to, like, unwind from work or, you know, when I'm driving into work even to, like, you know, just get my brain turned on for the day. Yeah. Um so what I've been listening to lately, uh, I would say the majority of it has been the Asia Saga by James Clavell. Woo! Inter- big stuff. Yeah. Interspersed with some other things here and there, because these books are, like, huge tomes. You know, they're, oh, yeah. they're, they're like, nearly 40 hours long each. Yeah, yeah. Um, so th- they're very large books, and there's, like, six or seven in the series. Yep. I think I'm on the second to last one right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did listen to um, Drugs as a Weapon Against Us. Oh, now we're so, sorry. So we left the fiction, and now we're getting into, well, some people might want to call it fiction, but now we're going into the nonfiction. Yeah, so uh, I listened to like two Asia saga books in a row, then yeah. I was like, I need a break. Yeah. So I listened to Drugs as a Weapon Against Us. Which is by um, John Potash. Which yeah. is a book I have brought up many, 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 many times on this show uh, because I think it gives a very different, you know, I, I mean, I'm just going to say this briefly and let you get into it. You know, I, my, what attracted to me to it was it gave a rare perspective of, I think a lot of people look at activist movements and think that, like, doing acid and whatever else is, oh, it's part and parcel. Like, this is all about creating the new mindset and everything. That's where John Potash comes in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe not. Maybe this is all CIA, you know, uh, uh, hocus yeah, pocus going on. the that he used was AstroTurf. Like, right. instead of it being a grassroots movement, it was AstroTurf, as in it was, like, prefabricated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, so the, what the drugs were doing, they weren't liberating people. They were actually doing the exact opposite and kind of imprisoning them in this, you know, kind of wild culture that you could argue it created or different culture that it created. Uh, Please continue with your thoughts on this book. I'd love to hear them. Okay, yeah, I can talk about this book. So um, as a person who has experimented in the past with a variety of psychedelics, Mm -hmm. um, I went into this book thinking like, you know, there, there's no way that they can say anything that is going to fool me into changing my mind because I've already had these experiences and they were very positive yes. overall. Um, but 
I think the thing for me that made me different as a drug user than most other people was that like anytime I did acid or mushrooms or uh, MDMA, I was generally speaking in a safe environment with people I trusted right. with the majority of the intention being self-discovery, like going on a journey inside of myself mm-hmm. and not necessarily just a party, uh, right. which I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That can be very fun, but it's also a waste of this rare opportunity. Um, but anyway, uh, getting back to the book, what what you're saying about um, you know the astroturf movement mm. being kind of uh, initiated by CIA operatives, um, this is just a continuing. Well, what Potash says the the argument that he's making is that this is a continuation of history and that it's not really anything new for governing bodies because in the past the way that people were kind of controlled the way that money was made you know millionaires um was through the opium trades right and and that has been going on for hundreds of years um so you know which was used as a political tool in china Yes, China and Japan, which, funny enough, this Asia saga that I've been listening to is telling that story Uh in parallel. So I was actually, yeah, Yeah. I was actually primed and ready to listen to this book because I knew what he was talking about when he was saying, like, the opium wars or the opium triangle Mm -hmm. in these countries and how, like, Britain would have to sell opium to China because... That's the only way that they could get silver to fund their banking institutions from China. Um, And while a lot of British people thought this was highly immoral and highly improper, um, it was a protected trade because we can't let the banks fail. Yeah. So um, the opium triangle became one of the most highly contested pieces of land. Um, you know, between the natives that lived there and the British Empire wanting mm-hmm. to have control over it. Um, and opium was a great tool to keep rebellions down. You know? Right. And LSD, you could argue, was a continuation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a fascinating discovery, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a lot of potential to be used therapeutically but like when it was introduced to Europe and the US in the 50s and 60s it was used in a way that was like this is the cool thing to do this is the rebellious thing to do mm-hmm. um, and sometimes it was given to people without them even knowing it like this has even happened to a lot of stars that that people think about Um, as dying young like apparently it happened to Janis Joplin where you know she was given LSD and wasn't told until afterwards and she was actually really upset about it um Jimi Hendrix yeah Jimi Hendrix he did not use drugs I think that's a misconception that a lot of people have is like he he wasn't into drugs at all even though he was into this trippy musician kind of vibe Mm -hmm. he didn't take LSD voluntarily. He was doped with it once. Yeah. Um, and it was a very harrowing experience for him. Um, it, yeah, there's just a lot of 
weird things that happened around that time with musicians too, like very yeah. culty things, uh, lots of intimidation. Um, yeah, I mean, how do you feel about the Grateful Dead now? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm not such a huge fan of the Grateful Dead after listening to this book because apparently they were, um, the like the first band to, the not only the first band but the band that stuck around the longest with the um, I forget what they're called but the parties were like the Kool-Aid was laced with acid mm-hmm. and they have the big dumpsters out of the or you know the, the barrel drums whatever that um, wasn't every time it oh, was okay. just yeah, some yeah. some vo- some of the locations where they were playing that many people showed up where they like had to fill up giant dumpsters full yeah. of the Kool-Aid because there was just that many people um and it was it it was this thing back then like can you pass the acid test can you drink a cup of this acid-laced Kool-Aid right. and have a great time? And so the the Grateful Dead was, like, leading the charge on this. Like, every time they'd play, they'd have the acid test there. Um, and I'm probably get some of, getting some of these facts wrong, but uh, this is just, like, the picture that was painted for me in the, the book. Sure. But the fact that they were the ones that were, like, distributing acid the most, especially to... Areas where people were um, protesting a lot, like against right. the Vietnam War or against oppression of minorities, um, they were especially, you know, introduced to acid and mm-hmm. and this new form of opium called heroin that was even more potent. Um, and it's not necessarily that like you take acid once and you're brain damaged for life, though potash does try to make that argument um i don't know how true that uh, to what extent that has been proven yeah like i tried reading about this afterwards because i was genuinely scared like have i been brain damaged Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but it seems that there there's not like that much evidence of that happening right um some some people do have a sort of ptsd like, if they have a bad experience while they're on the drug, they can sometimes be stuck with that feeling recurring. Yeah. Um, and that's very unfortunate. Yeah. But that doesn't happen to a large majority of people. Yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll bring this up quick. Like, the, the scenarios that Potash talks about that happened, where even, like, world leaders are going to, like, these gatherings, and the furniture's, like, laced yeah, you know, where somebody shit. targets them and, and yeah. like touches them with acid so right. that they speak incoherently and discredit themselves. Yes, yeah, like yeah, all these things. I'm just like, you know, I, when I read this book, I mean, I was, I read it more or less around when it came out, you know, but I was already kind of knee deep in, you know, I was in New Hampshire already, a few years, gone to Pork Fest and all these mm-hmm. things. I'll admit, I read this book and I'm like, I don't know if I want to go to Porkfest. I don't know if I want to go to like, these things. Like, like to any any kind of party, any kind of gathering, you know, of activists. I'm like, well, fuck me. Like, I'm I'm like I'm not going anywhere near any of those events, you know, uh, because I, I you know I wouldn't necessarily want that to happen. Um, and yeah, it, it really like it, it's a book that I read, and and it. Honestly, it enraged me. Like, I was, I was, I just remember walking away from it. I mean, and I've never been into this stuff anyway, but I was just so mad 
you know, that, that this is going on and that there are so many asshats out there, even people in like the tech world and the tech sector, which at the time was kind of, you know, my go-to area of what I would talk about on the show and everything, um, you know, talking about, how, oh yeah, like I did all this and then, you know, I came up with this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but wait a minute, <laughs> you know, like what about all this? You know, the, like the stories that John Potash would talk about. And yeah, I just remember walking away from it really livid. Now, to be fair, um, I have, you know, as far as books that I haven't read yet, but they're very high on my list to get to, I have like probably three or four books on LSD specifically um, in my Audible library uh, that are written by like, you know, either the quote unquote, you know, creator is a funny term, but say the creators, you know, whatever, like that are positive about it. And I want to read those and I want to get through those. And I want to, you know, cause I want to give all of this stuff a fair shake for varying reasons that have more to do than activism as to spirituality and all kinds of things. Okay. Um, but boy, this, this book, and, and it, you know, what else really bothers me is that I can't think of another book like this one. And that's weird. You know, this book is very revolutionary. Like, yeah. I think if, if the majority of people listen to books like this, they would also be enraged. Right. They'd be like, I got tricked into thinking this right. culture was cool, right. but actually it's just keeping me from focusing on the things that I'm truly passionate uh -huh. about. And I know for myself that when I drop drugs, I really focused in on what I was passionate about. And that's kind of the purpose. Sure. That's why I chose to give them up. Sure. Um, this book also described some of the things that were going on even beyond the 60s and 70s right. into the 80s and 90s. Like, this book convinced me that Kurt Cobain and Tupac were both murdered yeah. um, for drug-related reasons. Mm -hmm. or they well, were, for activism-related okay, reasons. They were, and, yeah, so they were yeah. murdered. Um, drugs were, you know, in the periphery of what was going on with them. Not mm -hmm. that they generally like to use drugs. I mean, Kurt Cobain had his own problems, but mm -hmm. um, the circumstances of his death, you know, highly suspicious. Yeah, yeah. But yes, it was about activism. Like, Kurt Cobain was truly a radical leftist, and Tupac, like, his family was in the Black Panthers, like, all, you know, people he grew up around, he was, he was, like what their youngest speaker like regional speaker mm -hmm. um yeah so they were they were both into things that were very anti-authoritarian right. and because they were so publicly you know in the spotlight they were very popular they had to be taken care of yeah yeah yeah, um, I mean, that doesn't even get into the history of how drugs were used to, you know, basically discredit and disband the Black Panthers, yeah. uh, which is, in my opinion, tragic. Absolutely, uh, <laughs> you yeah. Know, like, like I am, I'm, uh, I am very supportive of uh, all of the nonviolent and communal efforts that the Black Panthers, you know, engaged in. Or even the Young Lords that, yes. you know, they were also talked about. Right. It's kind of like the Black Panthers, but for the Hispanic community. Yeah. Um, they were doing all sorts of really forward-thinking things for their community. Right. Like giving them free medical aid and, like, setting up funds and homeless shelters and, and like, you know, food kitchens and all this stuff to take care of their people. Yeah, oh, this book's even worth reading just because of that history. Right. Of, of, you know, forget about even the drugs. Like, just that history is amazing.
to experience to, to read about and yeah. experience is like wow no they really tried i never you know? heard anything positive right. said about the black panthers before until right. i listened to this book right yeah so you know one of the things that really now okay folks now like you said earlier ellen you know these things can be helpful in the right environment you know like they're or, or am i am i if I'm misquoting you, you can tell me. Yeah, in the right environment, with the right dosage. Right. Um, I mean, of course you want to be safe and make sure you actually know what you're getting as well. Yes. Especially today. Um, like, I'm, I'm, I would almost be nervous if I was into drugs today. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'd, I'd be testing everything. Unless yeah. it was something purely natural, like mushrooms. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Different story then, right? Right. Yes, yeah. So, um... But I to to this day, I consider it, you know, this isn't always true. This this isn't like a matter of fact. But when there's only like one book about such a dramatic subject or such such an important subject, uh, that and it's the only book that has this angle, and this angle is so counter or, or so uh, countercultural, so counterintuitive to to everything else that we experience out there. Uh, you know, this is this is one of those books that feels like it's the third way, which is usually where I think you kind of find the truth, okay? Because otherwise what you have is it's like, no, drugs are bad, or, yeah, let's go party. You know, like, usually that's, that's the dichotomy, are those two directions, as to where this one's like, oh, wait a minute, you know, and, and, and it comes up, you know, in the center here. And, yeah, it's like drugs are bad and the government is bad. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, like there's, yeah. They're both bad. Yeah, like it's ripping on drugs and authoritarianism at the same time, which you don't always necessarily get. Usually it's, no, I'm anti-authoritarian pro-drug, or it's pro-authoritarian anti-drug. Right, right? and this one's just anti-both. It's like anti-all of it. And I'm like, ah, yes, okay. <laughs> I can relate. So, <laughs> um and, and, and again, it's just so rare. And when I find something that rare, to me, I usually feel like, okay, no, the truth is here because no one else wants to talk about it. You know, that, again, that's not always the case. I wouldn't consider that a matter of fact. I wouldn't consider that a principle to run with. But it's just something that I've commonly experienced, you know. And, and often these books do not get talked about by either culture. And this is a book... I'm the only fucking person, now you, Ellen, too, but I'm the only fucking person I know that talked about it, that even read it up until this point, even though I know Potash has an audience. I mean, and there's there's a documentary version of this book as well out there. Um, I have it. I have the Blu-ray. We haven't watched it. Um, I've never seen it. Uh, he's done another book or another documentary lately that has to do with um, the COVID vaccine, and, you know, he's anti that. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, it's called Shots is the name of the of the documentary. Uh, I don't have a copy of that yet, but I'm going to, I'll get my hands on one. Um, I think, amazingly, you can even watch it on Amazon Prime. That blows my mind. What? I know. That's crazy. How the hell do they allow that to happen? Uh, anyway, that's because free speech isn't actually in danger, folks. It's just the truth. So... <laughs> <laughs> You can say whatever you want. You might not be able to say it on every platform, but you can still say whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, as uh, long as you don't use certain words. Yeah, like, right. Like, you can't say the V word on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. But then, at the same time, okay, you can't say it on YouTube, but you can say it, you know? like Sure. And, and there are other platforms where you can say it. Yeah, so, like, if you wanted to write a book. Right. You can't be censored in a book. No, no, not not really. I mean, and so that that's... I mean, that's a total side subject, 
but I get so annoyed by this. Oh, free speech is under attack. No, no, it's fucking not. Like, it's just not. You can say whatever you want, and, and, and you can get it out to thousands, if not millions of people. You really can. Yeah, as long as you don't have sponsors. Well, that's, yeah, right, right, okay. Um, but that's the thing, is you can say these things. What's in danger now, you know, it's not that YouTube is keeping people from talking about the V word or something like that. What's in danger now is the truth. What's in danger now is, is that, like, the truth is getting stuffed. It's not that it can't be out there. It's that it's algorithmically getting destroyed or, like, AI is, you know, filtering it or something along those not lines. Not to and, mention, like, most people just don't care anymore. Like you were saying, sure. there's so many distractions every day. Like, how, oh, yeah. are, how are people going to spend the time to find what the truth truly is? Especially right. if it's something as obscure as, you know, John Potash's book. And even in that, I feel like he throws around the word brain damage pretty carelessly. Yeah, I mean, but right. He still has the right to say that, you know, even though it's, it's more of like a... He's really reaching... To when he's saying that. Yeah, I think it's important to fact check even Potash's work, a lot of it. I mean, he's I think he's very good at making a case, but, you know, certainly there might be some things where, oh, okay. But overall, again, it's such a unique book. I'm so glad you read it. I'm honored that you read it. You know, uh, when I used to talk about it years ago, there wasn't an audiobook about it. I'm glad there is now. You know, I'm glad there's even a documentary so that people can, like, take this stuff in in a, in a quicker... Because it's a big book. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of information in it. Yeah. And frankly, it, it did feel at times like it was, you know, a, a confetti cannon of facts. Right. And it was jumping all over the place. Like, right. not just people, but times. You know, like, the timeline was not continuous. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of hard to keep up sometimes. Um and just so much information packed into this book. But I, I truly found it fascinating. And overall, you know, I feel more informed mm -hmm. as a person after having read it. Yes. And it did uh, dovetail nicely off of the Asia Saga. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Which is amazing. Um, I mean, what do you think? Let me let me ask you this on the Asia Saga. I mean, like, what do you think of that? I know you're not completely finished with it, but like... You know, where do you compare this in... I mean, these are massive books. It's a long series. covers a long span of time. Yeah, like 500, 600 years almost. Right, right. Um, I mean, where, where would you... You know, where would you put this? Like, I mean, I, obviously, I you wouldn't keep going if it wasn't good. It's great. It's very entertaining. They got some amazing narrators to mm -hmm. do this. I mean, nobody can be George Goodall, but they did a heck of a good job because, you know, you're doing a book about uh, immigrants going to Japan or to China. Right. Um, and so you've got, like, Irish people, English, Americans, Japanese, Chinese, all these different, uh, you know, all these different civilizations mm -hmm. clashing and living together. Um, and the narrators are just, you know, keeping up with all of it. It's oh, really I, yeah. Uh, one of the, I can't think of his name. But the narrator, I think, that did a few of the books thus far, um, he's one of my favorites. It's terrible, I can't think of his name. But he also did uh, what audiobooks are out there of the um, the Grian saga, uh, which is by John Norman, which, talk about libertarian, he's definitely in that number. Um, but the, the, like the, the, you know, the Chronicles of Gore, uh, I love those books, which also, oddly enough, all start in New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> um 
and he's also was it Ralph it, Lister? I think it might. Yeah, I think it's Ralph Lister. Uh, but he does those books as well. He's a he's a dynamite narrator. I mean, he's just fantastic. He's right up there with uh, a lot of the like Mark Thompson, George Godall, like you mentioned, and uh, a lot of these other cats. Um, so okay. So, yeah, I mean, would you put this up there with, like, the Dune saga? You know, I mean, it's different. It's not sci-fi. But... Yeah, so I would say this this series, while it is fiction, it's historical fiction, so mm-hmm. it's based on real events, mm-hmm. um, and it's meant to, like, entertain, but also teach you some things at the same time. Yes. Even if the events and the people and the locations are slightly different, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I feel like I'm learning a lot, I'm being entertained, um, it, it really puts you back in those scenarios. Like the first book that I listened to, you know, the, the ship after months of sailing on the ocean washes up onto Japan's shores and like the whole crew gets tortured for weeks. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's like so grinding to listen to this because yeah. it's, it's really detailed and gruesome. Yeah. But then afterwards, you know, it gets into, <clears throat> that's all right. No, no, keep, keep rocking. So you have, <coughs> go ahead and cough it up. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking for a while. Can you put that part out? Okay. But then the book gets into um, more of the Japanese mindset of, like, how can I play these foreigners to my own advantage? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you really get inside the mind of Japanese people and how patient they are yeah. and how far ahead they think. Like, everything is a game of chess. And they have these three different hearts and, like you know, all of these different faces for whatever scenario they're in, um, and they're cultivating privacy in their own minds yes. from birth because they're they're living in such close proximity to other people. Like, they don't have the material on their island to build solid wood walls like we do. Right. They live in houses that are basically made of waxed paper. Yes. And it keeps the mosquitoes out. But you can hear everything. You can smell everything. Yeah. So there's, like, not a lot of privacy, and you have to cultivate that within yourself. So that really, um, you know, creates this culture of people that are so um, in touch with their inner worlds. And they really think in quite a different way from the Europeans. And you come to find out that, like, the Europeans truly are smelly and they're (laughs) clumsy and kind of stupid and gross compared Uh to japanese people um and you you kind of join uh the captain jonathan blackthorne on this journey of becoming more japanese and learning to bathe every day and to eat healthy food (laughs) and to be like more patient and cautious right um and then you know the the book saga continues that was in i think the 1500s the next book takes place in the 1600s or the 1700s um, as a sort of settlement. Like, the Japanese still don't really like the fact that gaijin are in their territory, which mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. means, like, foreign devil. Yeah. Um, but they like that they're so wealthy, and they want to learn how to be that wealthy. Yeah. So they allow them to have a little settlement. Um, but of course the Europeans want to push even further inland. Like there's places that they've never been allowed to see. (laughs) So obviously they're very curious, um, but they just, you know, go about it with violence and their usual tactics. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the, the saga carries on into modern day, you know, mm -hmm. like the book I'm listening to now takes place in the 1950s, but it's a very clear line all the way from Japan to Hong Kong um, and how the Europe how the Europeans have kind of like brought about the the connection between the Eastern and the Western worlds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a very in-depth saga. I wouldn't say that it's like philosophical in the sense that Dune is. Right. But it does definitely paint a beautiful picture of the differences between East and West, and it really puts you in the shoes of all of these cultures, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. just one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, my first experience with it was there was a fantastic miniseries done, um, boy, like 40 years ago. Wow. Uh, yeah, from on the first book, on Shogun. Um, and uh, that, when I watched that as a kid, like, I was like, holy, holy crap, that's amazing. <laughs> like, literally, that was, that was awesome. Um, and, you know, other things would get, create my obsession with Japan into, you know, well, to today. Uh, so, but, but, uh, but I read like the first three books after that, uh, you know, when I, when I got a little bit older and blown away, you know, um, and I actually look forward to reading since you kind of, you know, you picked up on them. I look forward to, to reading the other books in the future as well. Anyway, um, any other books you want to get out there quick or? Yeah. So there was one other book that I read in the middle of two of these Asia saga books, and that is the book Bitch by Lucy Cook. So it's called Bitch. That's right. Right on. Okay. By Lucy Cook. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. So it's called Bitch because this book is about females, basically, but not just human females. Uh-huh. Um, it's about females of every different kind of species you can think of mm -hmm. um, and how important matriarchy is in some of those. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really great book. I love it. Um, there's some fascinating investigations into, like, the male-female relationship uh -huh. and more of how, like, females really tie together culture. Um, and obviously it's different between species, but in most social species, females are like the matriarchs that know where the food is, they, mm -hmm. they take care of children, they create families, mm -hmm. they hold them together over a long span of time. Um, and they, you know, they're, they're like the wizened peacekeepers. Um, I, I really loved listening to this book. I remember you know, coming home and telling you about it every day. Oh, yeah, day. we'd be on our walks, and you'd yeah. be telling me, like, everything about it. Like, oh, see what happens to these monkeys and, you know, whatever <laughs> else. Uh, it was really fascinating. Yeah, I think the most fascinating part of that book, really, was learning about the naked mole rats. Um, so this is, like, a very standout part of the book, very weird and different from everything else in it. Mm -hmm. But naked mole rats are, like, worse than bees, when it comes to being territorial uh -huh. and um, just the, the amount of competition between females um, and, and how reliant they are on each other. Right. Like they do have a hive, so they are kind of hive-minded, mm -hmm. um, which is weird for mammals mm -hmm. because, you know, you think of mammals, usually they're independent in some way. Yeah. But the colony is mostly made up of females, um, 
and when one when the queen female you know dies is killed whatever happens um the other females will like literally eat each other to death in competition <laughs> to become the queen right it's, it's quite ferocious i mean right. they, they have those huge teeth on the front of their heads yeah um, and those teeth are made for burrowing. Like, they don't dig with their claws. They dig with their faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can imagine how brutal that could be. My, but my. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this book is just uh, a, a fascinating introspection into, like, how females are treated in other species in nature. And, I mean, I guess it's no surprise to me, but, like, in most in most species... Females are treated very well. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, treated as basically what they are, is like, you know, the treasures of, of the natural world. Like, the, they're the ability, they contain within them the ability to create. Yes. So the fact that, like, males are competing for them, or even, like, sometimes if they're competing for males, um, it's it's all about like women having this ability to not only raise the families, hold them together, uh, make sure they have the best genes and (laughs) sort of like female empowerment too, because in, in history, like especially natural history over the last 300 years, women have been painted as like docile. Um, they're, they're like the reluctant receivers of the penis, but you know, they're very like, angelic in a way (laughs) Uh, like they don't want to have sex but they will if they they have to be like coerced into it or something um but this book totally throws that out the window like women are you know sleeping around all the time (laughs) (laughs) like in in bird species especially this has been one of the biggest examples throughout natural history is like female birds sitting attending the eggs being so loyal and you know not not leaving the nest while the male bird goes out and feeds and then comes back mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to feed the female while she's roosting. But that's not true at all. Like, the females generally will have, like, a roost mate, and then they'll have a, an, a secondary partner. Like, they'll go out while the male isn't paying attention, and they'll get impregnated by somebody who's much more impressive, who has, like, brighter feathers or, you know, is bigger and stronger or louder call or whatever. Yeah. Um, so there's some really fascinating investigations into mating rituals in this book, too. Some very funny ones sometimes. Do you feel that the book was... So, you know, something that, like, say, NASA does is in studying other planets, right, in our solar system or even outside of it, uh, you learn more about the Earth, Right. And, and it's one of the great arguments for doing so. Even if you never colonized this other, like Jupiter, you know, how could you anyway? But like, you know, even if you never colonized it, like learning about how another planet works informs you about how this planet works. Okay. Do you feel that learning about how these other uh, species, the females of other species operate? Do you think that that, was this book like making a corollary? Was it making a case for, and this can explain how human female why or why human females do xyz yes yeah i think that can be i mean that that simile is probably true yes there you go 
Yeah, corollary, whatever you want to call no, it. No, simile's great. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> and I think we really need it as humans mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. our history, especially over the last 300 years, has been dominated by white males who are Christians. Um, so they, they have been working those mores into the scientific literature for a very, very long time. Yes. And getting over those hurdles that are holding women back really like probably the fastest way to do that is to investigate how other species behave and yeah. like going through some of this research lucy cook was finding that like a lot of the scientific literature was misrepresenting the studies that happened because they were so shocked by some of the females behaviors mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like the females were being promiscuous mm -hmm. and that was not going to get published in the 1800s. Yeah, no, no. And Lucy Cook, an incredibly uh, uh, respected scientist in her own right, works with Richard Dawkins, if I'm not mistaken. Richard uh, Dawkins was her advisor yeah. in, in university. Um, and that's actually part of the inspiration for this book, was she felt that he was also infected by that sort sure. of mindset. Sure. Well, I mean, he's the guy that came up with the term cultural Christians. I mean, so talking about like where he was saying that he was even arguing, and that's not even in science, but he was arguing just in culture. Like, no, we've just, even if you're an atheist, you've taken on the trappings of Christianity. And here she's going the, you know, a little bit of a further distance, kind of like what you're saying. How, well, actually, like it's infected science as well. And it's not, we're not getting the right picture here, you know, yeah. because of this. And yeah, well, I think one thing that Richard Dawkins is really well known for is making that differentiation between uh, sexual selection and natural mm -hmm. selection. Yeah. And Lucy Cook really wanted to take that further and say, like, no, it's not just males that are sexually selecting. Right. It's also females. Like right. females are also having extramarital sex, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. or they're, you know not even partnering up with males sometimes they're just like going out and having a bunch of sex yeah and it's in order to get those best traits that they see from males mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. sexual selection goes both ways and women are very powerful deciders in that game yeah yeah i think and and i think a book like this is really important because most people i mean unfortunately we anthropomorphize a lot. Yeah, well, humans, yeah. <laughs> humans anthropomorphize like there's no tomorrow on all kinds of creatures, you know, and and like it's it's almost unconscious that it happens because it's just it's just part of the, again the cultural mores. It's just taught, right? It's mm -hmm. part of the cultural norms, and so you know the everyday person, really guy or gal, human guy, human gal, or Z, whatever. Okay, they will instantly, I think think that if you're talking about, I don't know, pick a species, gorillas, whatever, okay, that the female gorilla, they'll anthropomorphize it, and they'll put cultural norms for human females upon that gorilla, when what they don't understand is, is that zoologically, many females of other species are actually, the again, zoologically, the dominant gender, right, or the, the dominant uh, biological sex, and and dominance is another idea that's explored in this book because right. it doesn't express itself in just 
the physical dominance. No, no, aspect. right, 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 right. Absolutely. And that, that's why I wanted to use the term zoological to explain that we're not just talking about like authority, power over, that kind of thing necessarily, right? Um, and so, like, I think most people would be shocked, you know, to find outside of maybe the insect world to find out that, wait a minute, like, women are the pursuers in the species <laughs> or, you know, whatever that happens to be. Um, do you want do you want to expand more on that or? Yeah, yeah, I just find dominance to be a really fascinating idea because, mm -hmm. you know, what does that really mean? Like the ruling class or the ruling gender? Right. You know, dominance can express itself obviously in the physical form. Right. Like, um, we've, we all know what that looks like. You yes. Know, just some big muscular man. And in a lot of species, men are the larger of the two genders, mm -hmm. but that's not always true. Exactly. Like, exactly. sometimes women are the bigger right. of the two genders. Right. And they have physical dominance. Right. But that's not the only form of dominance. Like, sometimes yeah. women are dominant in whatever species just because they are the um, the gender that spends... How do I put this? They are closer together. They treat each other like sisters. Mm -hmm. You know, they groom each other, feed each other... Um, they gossip together, mm -hmm. you know, whatever corollary that takes on in other species. Right. Women have a, a closeness, a, a sisterhood that doesn't always exist in the male gender. And that gives them power because they are able to intimidate in some ways mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the men mm -hmm. um, and to kind of, I don't know if coerce is a good word, but coax the men into giving them what they want or doing what they want for right. them. Yeah, so fascinating. Uh, Bitch by Lucy Cook, right? Yeah. I got that yep. right? Okay. Uh, definitely worth checking out. Now, here's the thing. So I want to start getting into... Um, I want to get into kind of our stories that we have lined up for, for this. And the very first one has to do with not remembering what we read. Now, you <laughs> would seem to call bullshit... <laughs> on a lot of that because I think I mean you're, you're zinging with factoids from these books and you only read them once correct yes but admittedly I don't remember as much as I would like to of course like even talking about this book mm -hmm. bitch I, I know there's terminology I learned while listening to this book that I cannot remember right now right or specific examples of things that I'm talking about yeah which so this book is full of and I can't think of many no, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I kind of I want to get into this subject because I think it's an interesting one. And I think there's really a lot to, to kind of pull from it. We'll see how many stories we can get into in this because we've been going an hour strong already. Um, but let's break into this piece from the Atlantic. So from the Atlantic by Julie Beck. Um, and this is a fairly fresh piece. Why we forget most of the books we read. And then it has the subheader of, and the movies and TV shows we watch. So this is pretty much true for everything. Now, it's a little bit of a longer piece, so I don't, I don't want to read the whole thing, um, because that, that could take, you know, <laughs> for 15 minutes, something like that. Um, but she has some basic points that she's bringing up, and a lot of it comes down to that, well, memory is a fuck, Right? Like, memory is a bottleneck. Okay? Um, and we don't, you know, to use computer terms, 
we don't read something and upload it like a file into our brain, right? Like that information doesn't just get put into, you know, in, in perfect, uh, 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 as a perfect copy. Yeah, we're not data from Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. It, it says it's not a perfect copy from, you know, what, what we ingested, uh, shall we say, via book, movie, TV show, or something like that. Kind of her, I, I feel, and, and you read this piece as well, um, the overall point that she's bringing up is that really our brains create a tapestry. And all of these tidbits of information get put onto a tapestry, which isn't a carbon copy of what we just read. It's more adding to like a mental picture sort of that we already, that we already have. And her point would be that you really have to put in a lot of effort to remember things with exactitude, even though historically we had better memories, right? And she brings up the great kind of dialogue, quote unquote dialogue between Plato and Socrates, you know, where Socrates is like, oh no, no, we, you know, we don't want to write things down because then memory will be gone. You know, we want to keep things oral so that humanity has memory. Um, but then, ironically, you know, or Plato's kind of arguing th for that through Socrates, I believe. The irony is, is that we only know Plato had did this because he wrote it down, <laughs> or it was written down. Um, but, yeah, it becomes an argument of, you know, what's more important, having a great memory or having language or having writing, particularly? Because this is what it comes down to as well, that... If the person, if the individual thinks that this is information they can access later, for example, you have that audiobook, and as long as you have that Audible account, you have access to those audiobooks that you're talking about, and you can go back to them. So the argument would be that because the information is offloaded, you can, you can go back to it, and so you don't think it's important necessarily to store it. Certainly not as a carbon copy, anyway. Um, how do you feel about all of this? Well, I think what you're saying, what you're describing is true, at, at least for me, in some small ways in my life. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, there's things that I read about, like, all right, we're going to this event, or we make plans with a friend, and like, okay, I don't have to remember that date, that location, that time, because mm -hmm. I know that mm -hmm. I can just look back at the text and see you know, where it is or when it is or whatever. Right. So dates and times, I don't care about remembering, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. But there are larger things, like audiobooks, for example, that I listen to with the intention, or w knowing, I should say, that I'm only going to read it this once. Right. And so because I've kind of integrated that belief, I feel that I do need to remember it. But I also practice um, good remembering techniques in the sense that, like, after I listen to audiobooks for, like, you know, a day, two days, whatever, I'll have listened to a couple chapters, I always end up talking to you about it somehow. Mm -hmm. And that creates the moment of reflection that is necessary to turn that from short-term memory to long-term memory. Right. But... I, I do think memory is a fascinating thing, like you were saying about the tapestry, um, and, and it is stated in this article in more or less uh, 
terms, but memory is kind of everything. It's not just what you're reading or what you're listening to. It's right. the sights and the sounds and what you're feeling at that moment. Um, it's, it's really fascinating because I just had this experience like a few moments ago. You know, we were talking about Bitch by Lucy Cook, mm -hmm. and the more I talked about it, the more I remembered. And the, the recall is slow. Um, and there's things that I thought of even after we stopped talking about that book that right. I wanted to bring up, like like the idea that uh, promiscuity is a way to or confuse paternity. Mm -hmm. And like mm -hmm. that was another really fascinating thing about that book that I loved learning. Right. But I didn't immediately remember it, yeah. you know? It, it only came after we were talking about it for a few minutes. Yeah. So memory is this... It's not just a tapestry in that it's two-dimensional. I think it's it's also got a time dimension to it where, like, not everything... You're not going to remember everything all at once. You mm -hmm. know, if you're mm -hmm. trying to recall something, pieces will come to you, but the more you dwell on them, the more it will expand, and the more you'll be able to remember. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I think this article brings it up, and link is in the show notes, folks, for anything we're talking about that you can look it up. Um, or read it for yourself, you know, this article talks about how, you know, like thinking about a book is more than just what was in the book, right? You start to think about where you were when you're reading that, what you're smelling, like so many, like there's so many things going on because I mean, you know, you have five plus plus five plus senses. Okay. That are taking in information. It's not just your eyes. You know, like you're, you're, you're taking in so many things at once, you know, when you're reading, even when you're, whether it's a paper book in front of you or, uh, you know, or an audio book, you're still taking in so much more around you. And all of that is part of this memory and that that's part of what creates that tapestry. Um, so, you know, it, it's important to be cognizant of that, you know, that, that it is more than just the data, you know, that you collect from, from this book. Um, and so why do you forget it? Well, you know, you might be paying more attention even to the other senses. What do you, what do you got on what I'm saying? Yeah, so why do you forget things that you read? I mean, for most people, again, it's probably due to the fact that they're not taking that time afterwards to practice the good remembering technique of mm -hmm. reflection. Mm -hmm. um, reflection, I think, is is the key element to remembering things long term. Yes. Because, like it says in the article, reflection is the tool that takes that memory and, and moves it from your short term into long term memory right. because you're making more associations. And that's what memory is really all about, is building that network of connections. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason why it includes all of your senses mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. location sight smells how you're feeling um that's all integrated into the memory um but you have to practice reflecting in order to remember things and if you're forgetting it's because you're not reflecting and there's a lot of that in our culture today like binge watching television right watching youtube videos one after another after another scrolling through instagram you know you see these things for five seconds or five minutes and then it's over and you just move on to the next funny thing or whatever what you know? yeah that's a whole other problem 
that I think is in particular today, and, and the article does bring it up, like it would say the average person would encounter like 100,000 words a day or something yeah, like whether that. Whether you want in, to or not. In 2009. And they said, and there's no way that number hasn't gone up. And of course it has, you know. Um, and again, pictures are a whole other ballgame. You know, now that you have Instagram, you know, that didn't even exist or maybe it just barely existed in 2009. I want to say that started in like 2010 or 2011. But, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. So that's all that more information that you're taking in. Right. Uh, and but today, today, it's even more. I feel like it's a lot worse because now. So, so here's the thing with me. I'm, uh, I'm kind of known for my memory, you know, for my uh, knowledge base. And it's something that has gotten me in and out of doors that normally either myself or someone else wouldn't have been able to get in and out of, um, you know, because of that. And I say doors metaphorically and literally. So, you know, I, I used to pride myself on being a walking encyclopedia, you know, like... Uh, now that's, <laughs> there's so much information out there now, you know, like that's not really possible. You know, that, that kind of attitude of mine was sort of pre-internet, you know, but I've like really, really prided myself on knowing a lot. And in it's some... It's not like you know less now, it's just access to information is so much greater now. Oh yeah, 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 no, right, there's that. The other thing is that I would be encyclopedic you know, about my fictional worlds, okay? Uh, you know, like, try and find people that know more about Star Trek than me or that know more about Star Wars than me. Here's the problem. Like, now today, because of capitalism, there's so much shit, you know? Like, if you wanted, even if you wanted to know everything about, say, something as dumb as Star Wars, good luck, <laughs> like, like good luck even having the time reflection you're not going to have time to reflect on what you just read consume shit move on to the next thing i mean that's like that's the order of the day today yeah, yeah. and i'm really opposed to that no i'm with you i'm with you but it, you know, i like having my memory intact because i know how fallible it is sure right yeah no i i agree it's just there is a genuine problem with it's not the amount of knowledge that exists, but like there's just so much to take in now. And if you're someone that really wants to know, that like wants to be an expert or something, I mean, I, I think it's almost impossible to be, an, I mean, it was before the internet. It was before, you know, like Disney owned everything. It, it was long before that, but still it is now more than ever pretty much impossible to be a genuine expert on any subject. It's, you just, you can't. You know, and like, why do some people, I think, get excited about AI? Because they're hoping it'll help them be an expert or to extract the important information about all this. But, you know, the problem is with humans as much as it is with AI, it's garbage in, garbage out. You know, and, and I actually highly debate the AI's ability to reflect. But that's a side subject on its own. Um, no, I, I don't think AI can reflect. Right. I, I think that's just... A complete misunderstanding of the technology. Yeah, exactly. To say that it can. Right. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, all right, you know, let, I, want, I want to take a moment on this. So, okay, I want to upload the entire Zohar, okay, the entire book, and it's really books. I want to upload the entire Zohar into ChatGPT, 
and I want to ask it a question like, okay, you know, what is God or something like that? It's not going to give me the answer that the Zohar means. It can't give me the answer that the Zohar means. Unless the Zohar specifically says somewhere, God is blah, blah, blah. Which it does. And it'll tell me that. But I know that's not what the Zohar means. But I only know that, ironically, through non-writing, through, the, through oral tradition, right? Or I know it through, you know, like through other things. Or I know it through, um, you know, abstraction. Is this a concepts. conspiracy from the Jews to keep AI from ascending? <laughs> Is this oral tradition? <laughs> yeah, 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 we held it back. It's to keep lots of people from ascending. Uh, anyway, <laughs> no, but really, but but this is the thing, is that, you know, there 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 is, AI just cannot, will there's no way it can grok. Like, AI is not going to come up with, oh, when it says God's beard, um, that means like this mechanical device or whatever, you know, like it's not going to come to those conclusions, you know, um, it just it, like it won't happen because you have to, there, there's so much abstract and parallel processing that has to be done that honestly, I think only spiritual beings are, you know, are capable of, um, or, well, anyway, that gets into a bigger subject too, but it, it, it just, it won't work, you know, and this is the importance of that reflection like you said, you know, and, and that's, I think it speaks to kind of a larger point that with reflection, taking the time with what you read, integrating it, um, you know, that, that it, it, it's so important and it's into, it becomes integrated becomes because it becomes a part of your story, right? Your life story. And that's that's what makes it integrated. And like, what life story does AI have? Anyway, please, what what do you? Yeah, have? I I think you know it's similar to food in that you can't just put the food in your mouth, taste how delicious it is, and then swallow it and be done with it. Mm-hmm. You have to also digest it, which right. is a much longer process. Right. Where you're actually absorbing it, making it a part of your being, your physical being. I think reading books is very similar. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to tell you, okay, not to get lost on this, I have to tell you, in your brilliance, this is why I love talking with you about anything. And I always tell you this, because, like, you'll bring up something, or I go, oh, oh, oh you know, and then, like, it just, it, you, you, you bring up things that create entire other paths to walk, okay? Now you've got me wondering, like, wait a minute, so was there an AI, you know, during the, the Younger Dry Ass period, or sorry, Younger Dryas? <laughs> Not the younger dry ass. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> during the was there was there like an AI before the younger dry ass or dryass that um, you know that 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 was like this apocalyptic scenario, and yes, that's exactly why humans created oral traditions because you know it was to keep it away from the AI. <laughs> like, like that. That's you got me going down a science fiction path on that. I mean, it sounds a bit like the Dune, the Dune series. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, they went so far as to say, "Thou shalt, you know, not make a machine in the mind of man," uh, or you know, representative of the mind of man. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. Now I'm kind of wondering about that. <laughs> it fits a little too well. I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, and and there, I know there was a previous. <laughs> it's got me thinking because there was a previous meme too about like 
why did ancient peoples worship the sun? And it's because a Carrington event happened that wiped out the AI that was controlling them. And so they're like, oh, thank you, sun, yeah, for destroying right? this overlord, this AI overlord. Um, but yeah, makes makes me kind of wonder because, you know, a couple of traditions, you know, like or many traditions, really, but I mean, you know, uh, uh, the Hebrews, uh, many of the First Nations peoples, you know, they rely upon their oral traditions in, in really being able to understand, you know, so much of their cultures. And, uh, wow, maybe they did, did that to, uh, yeah, to keep, to keep the AI from ascending, like you said. That was brilliant. Okay, sorry, that was a total, total side tangent, but that was good. That was very good. Thank you. Yeah. I came up with that one on the fly. Um, yeah, so... You know, this concern of, I mean, I think the ability, you know, and, and in the article, I know they, they talked to, you know, some experts basically saying it's like, oh, like, I'll take writing any day of the week over having a great memory. Um, writing has allowed us to do so many amazing things. Yes. Like, create books which log histories. Which yes. could provide more detail than an oral tradition. Right. Not to mention... We get to do all sorts of fun things like poetry. We get to write literature. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, writing is excellent. It's also a way to like teach and educate. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. so many different subjects. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm reminded of Korzybski, Alfred Korzybski's work on general semantics, and his argument for why humanity, what makes humanity so unique, and arguably so powerful, though maybe he wouldn't use those terms is our ability to what he calls, he calls us time binders. Meaning, we learn from previous generations, unlike other animals. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we learn from history, the history of our own species. And a big part of that is writing. Now, you don't need writing. You can do an oral tradition. But, you know, I think, I think some people would say, well, if you stuck with only oral transmission, you would end up playing a game of telephone, right? Mm -hmm. Where whereby you get to the end of the circle and it's something completely different. I push back on that a little bit because we know, of course, ironically through writing, but we know we used to, you know, there used to be groups like in Europe of people who would go around and sing the news in medieval times. Sure. And they could learn up to what, like, like a, I don't know, some insane amount of a, a thousand words. I mean, like some crazy amount that they could memorize. And, they would memorize. They, they would repeat it perfectly verbatim. So I don't think the game of telephone is always the 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 end game of this, you know. But admittedly, that also took a very specialized group. That that's all that they did, and that's all that they worked on, which kind of speaks to another thing. Um, stress, and, and it gets brought up in this article. But I do think stress keeps us from being able to remember. Like it just wipes out our capabilities for creative thought, certainly our abilities yep. for reflection, mm -hmm. as well as um, just memory storage in general. Your brain's fried on stress, bottom line. Right. So, you know, that that's, that's another issue entirely. Something I want to ask you, though, in all of this, you know, we kind of explored, like, the different reasons as to why nobody can really remember, because you're either you're expecting the Internet to know, you're expecting AI to know, you're expecting it to be on Audible or Kindle or whatever, or you have a paper copy, who knows what. Or distractions. I mean, the fact that mm -hmm. people are trying to multitask all the time, I think that completely blocks 
people from remembering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can't multitask. Yeah. It's not possible for your brain to do two things simultaneously in that sort of realistic right. way. Right, multitasking's a lie, for sure. So I want to ask you this question, tell me what you think. Is there such a thing as too many books? Too many books? Yeah, is there such a thing as even perhaps too much information? Well, so that's a different question. Okay. When you say too many books, no. There's no way that you can have too many books. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's reasons for that. Like, books aren't going to jump out in your face and distract you like an ad on the internet is. True. You know? There's just sitting there waiting for you to read them at any time. Mm-hmm. And you can spend your entire life reading. Mm-hmm. And if you love reading, just do it all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think mm-hmm. that's wonderful that, that people love learning and and just absorbing the existences of other people in mm-hmm. that way. You know, exploring these other realms of fantasy or whatever. Um, but as far as your second question... Can there be too much information? Yes, there can be too much information. And I think, well, strictly coming from a scientific perspective, um, this this is a problem with large data sets, mm-hmm. um, is that there's there can be, you know, a lot of information there, but what is, what is the story that the information is actually telling? Right. Um, and that's what is so important. I mean, that's what, um, like interpreting data is all about. Mm -hmm. It's not about like looking at the individual numbers and reading them out one at a time Mm -hmm. because that like just makes no sense. Right. What you really want to see is what's the trend line. What, what's the average, what's the standard deviation? Like, you know, how true is our interpretation of what this data is telling us? Uh, where are the variances, you know? Um, what conclusions can we draw and what can't we draw? And that's yeah. really what you're looking for. So if there's too much information, too much noise, mm-hmm. you can't draw conclusions. Right. And that's the danger of having too much information, yeah. I think. Because yeah. if your data is no good, you're not going to reach a conclusion. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, so... And this, this kind of brings us a little bit full circle to the beginning where we were talking about being in the sweat lodge, figuring out what you want, mm-hmm. right? Being able to answer that question. I think when you can answer that question, and it's, it is possible to do, when you answer that question, I think then you have a starting point of your story. You, 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 brilliant that you use the word story. Okay, because that's what you're looking for. What is this telling me? What's the story here? And I think when you know your story, or at least the start of it, with what you want, then you can take in this information, and I think you can actually take advantage of the fact that your brain does take memory, does add memories, not verbatim, not carbon copy, but as a tapestry. And that tapestry is your story, and you can apply the information. You can be a bit more selective. You know, it's kind of like your own set filter to where you can take a lot of this stuff in. And I think that can be a very useful way to do this. I mean, otherwise, you know, when I think of like, you know, because this article also covered, you know, movies and TV shows and everything. 
I mean, the way that I memorized everything, yeah, I have a good, I have a memory, you know, like a memory that does pretty good for some reason. But regardless, it's because I watch these things over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, raw repetition does help. Yes, right. You know, like that. that's, in fact, I think that that's almost the, like the only guaranteed way. I don't know that it works for everybody, but it's, it's, it's like the way to do it, you know. Um, I mean, even on Audible, I have books that I listen to over and over again. Um, now you don't. Well, I, I haven't had the opportunity yet because there's just so many books that I want to listen to. Mm -hmm. um, and every time I think about re-listening to a book, I'm like, yeah, but I have all these other new ones that I need to listen to. Mm -hmm. Because every month or so I'll go on this kick where I buy like four new books and yeah. then, you know, have to listen to them because I'm so excited. Right. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I, I have not re-listened to any books recently. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess it's, it just comes down to the fact that, like, I, I feel that all sources of knowledge are important in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I haven't read anything recently that I felt was so important that I needed to listen to it a second time immediately. Right. Like, when I was a teenager, that was a different story. The first time I read Atlas Shrugged, I felt like it was a revelation to me. You know, yeah. it was more important than the Bible. Yeah. Um, and I had to reread it. But, you know, I, I'm not that much of a zealot anymore. Yeah. I, I know that I can't be an expert in any one thing, and I know my memory is fallible. And as much as I would love to re-listen to some of these books, um, I, I feel like, you know, there's going to be time for that someday. I don't know when, but... Mm -hmm. For the time being, I'm very excited to learn all of these new things. Right. You know? And I, I want to. I want to, like, spread my wings, metaphorically speaking. Yes. And, you know, just touch on all of these different categories of books, whether it's science fiction or historical fiction or real science. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, it. all of it is fascinating to me. And... At this time, I don't feel like I'm trying to pursue, like, one specific uh, category of knowledge or information, you right. know? I'm, I'm trying to become a well-rounded person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear that. I hear that. And I think that there's... And A, I mean, you're not even 30. Like, so you've got time. <laughs> you know, like that, that... I know, but I feel like there's just never enough time. No, I, I hear you. And And... I, I don't like this. I know that this is something the modern world has kind of pushed on us, but mm -hmm. I do feel like I'm in a, a race against time with some of this. Sure, as in, like, I need to know now before X happens, or... Yeah, just being aware of mortality, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that, that kind of pushes me to mm -hmm. want mm -hmm. to absorb as much as possible in mm -hmm. as short of a time as possible. Sure. But I'm also a person that's obsessed with efficiency, and I'm quite neurotic, um, so it's not out of character for me to feel that way. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. I mean, I'll say this. Like, I think, and I know audiobooks are really ultimately just going back, in a very real way, going back to those carolers, as it were, those the, the singers of the news, yeah. you know, from medieval yeah. times. We are, dare I say, blessed to have audiobooks today because absolutely because a couple things like one you know and you talked about this how you like you're on your commute going to work and you can take in audiobooks and all this right 
Like, no action, in my opinion, is a waste of time, thanks to audiobooks. You know, yeah. because because you're you're always able to take something in. You know, that's really useful or beautiful or you know, you take your pick, right? Um, and for me, the even bigger part is, like I said, that repetition for me has always been everything. The fact that I can take in these monster books in a day if I had the span of free time, you know, or whatever, you know, where, where you could take in a, a very large novel, say one that's like, I mean, and really like a 10-hour book would still be a fairly large novel. That you could listen to that at 2x, break the, bake that in in five, you know, in five hours and you could listen to that over and over again. I mean, you really can get in repetition with books, in my opinion. I know not everybody can do 2X. Yeah, I don't agree with you on that. I mean, I know yeah. you can train yourself to listen to things faster. Yes. And admittedly, sometimes I do listen to things at like 1.5X. And that mm-hmm. seems to be about where I'm comfortable at. Mm-hmm. But you cannot absorb it the same way you could if you were listening at 1X. Because your mind just cannot keep up. Like, yes, you're registering the words, mm-hmm. but you can't actually, like, reflect on what the words are saying at 2x or even 1.5x. Yeah, I, 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 there are points where something so powerful is being stated that I do slow it down. You're right. So, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with you there. But I do think, like, on a matter of repetition, it is so powerful to have that. But even then, even at, like... You don't even have to do 2x, you know, do 1.25. You can still read or listen faster than you can read, I think. And and do what you're saying where, yeah. where you integrate it, you reflect on it, you chew on it. Um, and, I mean, and that is the most powerful fucking thing we've ever been given. I think it's one of the greatest things that ever came out of, like, electronics. Yes, yes. Audiobooks? Oh, so great. I love <laughs> I love listening to stories. Right. Before I was into audiobooks, I was into podcasts. Yep. And it was actually one specific podcast. Um Radio Lab. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, Radio Lab sure. by NPR. NPR. Yeah. Yep. They were always telling stories and they were excellent at it. Well, it was I so mean, talented. Yeah, I mean our very existence is stories. You know, the universe universe mm-hmm. is a story. Uh, I, like we're, we're we are obsessed with stories. It, it's yes. the core of our being. Um, in my opinion, you know, like art is so... Yeah, well, you're right. And that's really what I think I was craving. I think everybody craves that in Mm -hmm. a way. Um, And we don't have very good storytellers anymore because we we don't carry on that oral tradition. And we we should. I really believe that we should. And audiobooks are, in a way, filling in for that, that verbal transmission from human to human. Right. Um, it's just the, the new age way to do it. Yeah. So, right. And, and one of my concerns as well is that you have a lot of writers now who haven't lived. And what I mean is they haven't really like gone out there and seen the world and do like, what the hell did James Clavell go through to write those books? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like where he's writing about, you know, Jonathan Blackthor- Blackthorn and his crew being tortured by the right. Japanese for several weeks before, like, he becomes a trusted member of whatever yeah. uh, ruler at the time. Uh, like, his his cadre of people that followed him closely. Yeah. Like, that is such a detailed story that is incredibly gruesome and and I I don't know what he saw. 
Yeah. But that is fascinating that he was able to write something that powerful. Right. Or you think of like a, exactly. Or you think of like a Rudyard Kipling, not saying he's a good guy, but holy shit, what, what did he live, you know, to be able to write like a lot of what he wrote, you know? And so, um, I'm worried that we're going to lose that. Fortunately, we have plenty of books that came before from authors that did live, you know, and, 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 and were knowledgeable and so on. Um, the flip side of this is, and, and this leads into the kind of the same problem, audiobooks are the great, are just the greatest, you know, like I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not even necessarily being, you know, uh, uh, extreme in that statement, but I'm worried that if people don't actually read these books because they're so well written, not just spoken, but well written, that people don't know how to write anymore or like write great anymore. Yeah, you know? and and that started before audiobooks. I mean, sure. I would blame that more on social media than sure. than yeah. audiobooks. Sure. Okay. I mean, social media and cell phones like texting um that that has infected people's minds in a way to where mm-hmm. they think that literary writing or writing in a business setting mm-hmm. can, you know, have elements of texting or social media talk or right. um, you know, internet language as I like to call it. Yeah, yeah. So now I yeah, I agree with you. Okay. Now here's here's the last bit I want to get into on this. And that is I worry, like this, this, this speaks to a larger problem where people think that they can, you know, this idea that why don't you remember what you read? It's because you don't, if it's not super important to you, life or death, perhaps even, you, or you recognize it that way, whether it's reality or not, you're just like, okay, no, I don't have to think about it. It's, it's, it's stored externally out there somewhere else. Okay. Um, so I don't have to remember it. Um, you know, that's fine. I have it on my shelf or it's on the internet or whatever. So it's not, not a huge deal. Okay. Uh, I get that. I understand why people feel that way. Part of my problem with that though is, is that people, I'm worried what it's happening is, is that people are only accepting what is either written or what is caught on camera or what is, yeah, caught on camera, whether it's video photo, whatever, that that's the only reality. And they're not allowing the fullness of memory, which includes, again, your five plus senses, to reflect what reality is. All right, well, think about this. The reality that people have built for themselves Mm -hmm. is fucking boring. And it's so sterile compared to... Oh, fuck yeah. uh, Like... The reality that, you know, the Native Americans experienced 25,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? There's buffalo, mammoths, whatever other megafauna that don't exist anymore. Everything's alive. They, yeah. were, they were living in nature, yeah. you know, with it as part of the same ecosystem. Yeah. Compare that to today. We, yeah. We're surrounded by four walls. They're drywall. They're painted. You know, we we got, you know, our, our nice double pane windows installed. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've got shingles on the roof, running water, electricity. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about anything. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. can just sit in this house and not give a rat's ass what's going on outside. <laughs> yes. You know, 
we're untouched by the elements. We're untouched by nature. Mm-hmm. We're completely separate from the ecosystem at this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our environment is just that. It's separate. It's dull. It's empty. Yes. It's void yes. of what makes the world alive. Yes. I agree. And part of my concern is this is what leads a lot of people to very, well, I'll, I mean, I, I can use a lot of very derogatory terms, but I'll just say it. Ridiculous ideas about existence yeah. in, in that, like, I think this is where simulation theory comes out of. I knew you were going to yeah. say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, no, go outside. Touch grass, motherfucker, you know, and like there, you're not, you can't, you're not going to put that down to ones and zeros. You know, I mean, we go on hikes now Oh, behind our house. There's, there's like a whole forest and a mountain that we climb. And I mean, you can just dig into every little nook and cranny and you find life upon life upon life. Uh, It just keeps getting smaller and smaller. I think the other day I found a mushroom that was like the size of a a pen head Mm -hmm. and I pointed it out to you and you're like, Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Like, can you imagine a simulation getting that granular with, with whatever graphics? I mean, especially considering just the the raw amount of data that's constantly surrounding us. Yeah. Constantly changing. Well, and, and get into the, you know, again, get into the five plus senses of it in that, you know, actually, we went on a walk earlier, and, and I told you about this. This is before we were recording. Maybe we were even talking about what we were going to record about, but mm-hmm. I didn't plan to talk about this. Yeah. Okay. And and I said to you, I said, what's that smell? Now, smell is the thing. Like, you know, what does Elon, more on Elon Musk, what does he say? He's like, oh, yeah, it's simulation theory. Because imagine what computer graphics are going to be like, you know, how much they changed in 20, 30 years what are they going to be like in the next 20, 30 years? Of course we're living in a computer simulation. Like, yeah, but computer games don't have smell. No. Okay. <laughs> and if you understand how smell works at the molecular right. level, you cannot simulate that on a computer. Yes. Like, you're talking about literal molecules mm-hmm. that are, like, you know, the size of just a few atoms going up and touching right. your neurons right. in such a specific way that it triggers that sense. Right, right. And there's, think about how many molecules it takes to trigger that smell. Yes. Not to mention how many different types of molecules are floating around in the air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. So, and, and I will get into the experience that I had, okay? But I, I want to, yeah, lay this groundwork in that, like you were just describing the power of smell and like, you know, just how complex it is. And... It's not just complex, it's powerful. Smell can talk about like bringing back memory recall and all that. Smell can, you know, bring back uh, uh, all kinds of memories. Oh, know, yeah. Smell m- is like the most powerful sense. That's yes. why people used to have smelling salts right. because you could be passed out cold, dead on the ground, and you smell something and you wake right up. Yeah. It's the only sm- sense that can really like penetrate that deeply into your subconscious mind. Right. Now, yes. Now, and here, here's, here's the deal. So people who are, are, who are, are, are hot to trot about simulation theory or any of its cousins, which are all just as dumb. 
Okay. Uh, they, a lot of everything they're talking about, they don't realize this. They don't realize that so much of what they're talking about are things based upon sight, you know, and we could even get into the very cliche and, and common in that, like, oh, the deja vu in the matrix, right? That's all based upon the, the sense of sight. Here's the thing. The sense of sight is, is also very complex, but it's a bit of trickery, right? It's a bit of smoke and literal, almost literal smoke and mirrors going on. Yeah, like you're seeing everything upside down and your brain has to flip it. And you're not even like picking up a fraction of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. That is out there. Yes, exactly. So your brain is going through a lot of filtering. Here's why smell, hearing is also similar in this. Here's why smell is so powerful. Because it's direct. Boom. You know, like it it goes right to the brain. Yeah, it's going right to your brain. Yep. Okay, so it is, in my opinion, like in some way, like I, you, you could make the argument that it's the most powerful sense you have. Okay, and I've talked about this in the past on the show, you know, saying that we have removed ourselves, unfortunately. Like you look at other animals, you know, we could look at Captain or Cat, and how does Captain the Cat, you know, like first experience anything it encounters, whether it's us or a mushroom or something, whatever. <laughs> It's a sniff, you know, like it's, it's, it, before he's even like seeing it, it it's like, oh, sn- I smell something and he sniffs it. And it's not a sniff from like far away. He puts his nose right yeah, up on it. Right in. Yeah, right on you. <laughs> okay, he might bite you after. No, he won't. He, Captain won't anyway. But No, like, he bites you, but yeah, that's well, just <laughs> you we, play around with him. Yeah, you? we roughhouse. So, uh, <laughs> but that's the thing is that for animals, smell is everything. Smell, smell doesn't just judge doesn't just judge like cleanliness or things like this the way we think of it smell judges attitude it judges uh emotions it judges like like there's so many things that smell brings in for a creature like the the concept of smelling fear yeah like what if you've been eating lately too right right okay so smelling fear is a real thing Yes. But there's also visual cues, cues to that as well. Right. Which right. I keep trying to tell you, you can't like jerk away from him. You gotta, no, no, right. You've got to be confident. Just yeah. stick your hand right in there and yes. don't move it. Yes. Yeah, no, you're, no, you're totally right. You're totally right. Okay. So anyway, let, let, let me get to my, my experience. So I think we've made the case. Smell fucking matters. And for humanity, we've almost killed it. Which is why I take it so seriously. When you said, what's that smell? Like yeah. we stopped. Yeah. We, just, we stood there and yeah. we tried to figure out what it is you yeah. were smelling. Yeah. So I said, I said, it's like, I know I'm just smelling the forest. Like I know it's, I know it's just the forest, but what am I smelling? There's something in particular that I am smelling that's different. Like there's something in the air and it wasn't like, oh, I'm smelling shit or something from the horses nearby. Uh, you know, it wasn't <laughs> anything like that. It's like, no, I know I'm smelling the forest, but what am I smelling? Like, what is this? Yeah, you weren't just smelling my stinky armpits. No, right, it was, right. It was more than just the dirt and the leaves, which is like a wonderful autumn smell. It it's is. very unique. Yeah. But the other thing that's unique about today, of all mm. days, compared to like the last few weeks, mm. we've had pretty cold weather. It's been like in the 50s throughout mm. the day, mm. getting down to 30s maybe at night yeah today was particularly warm yeah it was like 80 degrees yeah yeah exactly so you know i when you asked me so what do you think it is what does it smell like i said it smells moist that's what i said now moist isn't like a smell but well you can smell water right but it but it speaks to the point that like smell is is a three-dimensional thing you know like it's more than just like a scent you know it's more than just an odor. Like there is a sensation that even comes along with it. But anyway, 
So I had said it's like it smells moist. And you had brought up that I was, or you had theorized that I was smelling, like, you know, some people can smell rain. I'm one of those people. Yeah, um, same. Yeah, right. You smell the ozone or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you had brought up that you were probably, like, you may have been smelling, like, because the sun was out and it was oddly warm today. It was almost 80 degrees here in New Hampshire. Uh, the, the kind of the evaporation. Uh, yeah. Yeah, from, from, from the ground, you know, or from, from the entire forest. Yeah, yeah. Like, when it's warmer, molecules move faster, things right. evaporate faster. Right. Uh, so, and there was a lot of humidity in the air. Yeah, exactly. And, so, and where we were at, the humidity was probably coming from the ground up. Yes, right. So, I was smelling, like, everything around me. Like, I was really smelling the forest. I was smelling, like, there was just so much that was in that scent, uh, so much life, so much that was going on, not sanitized at all. Yeah, okay. it was amazing. Like, like we could tell other people had gone before us because you could smell the crushed mushrooms yeah. that people had tread underfoot. Yeah, and like you could smell everything that was going on. And for me, what ended up happening for me, and you know, I don't care what people think about me saying this, but it's the experience that I had. I literally felt time slow down. Like, I felt, like, the experience of existence was changing with that smell. That's how powerful smell can be, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it, can, it can work with your brain in, in such a way. And, you know, I don't want to get into, like, I could get into a whole Kabbalistic thing around this. Like, you know, okay, why did they sacrifice animals? And what was the big deal about the sweet savor to the Lord and all this stuff? That's because smell creates the effect in the brain that they were going for. Like, that's the purpose of those sacrifices. It doesn't mean you have to do things that way. And that's because the, the pure animal, you know, like, would ingest so much of the earth that they would they would get, get something similar. Anyway, I don't, I don't have to go down that road. If people want me to talk about that, I can do it in a Q&A or something. Okay, but my point is that you cannot feel the entirety of existence, even to the point of time and space-time itself, without taking in the scent. And if we think that all of reality can be comprised in writing, or on video, or, you know, in a photo stream on Instagram, or whatever, like, we are fucking lost. You know, and, and, and lost to the point that we think, oh, shit, this is all computer simulation. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, like, there's just, there's, you know, try to get a computer to, to calculate that experience that I had, to calculate smell, you know, and, and to, 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 to generate, like, it's just, it's not going to happen. What, what are your thoughts on all this crazy shit that I just said? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't think a computer could calculate smell. Right. Nor could it even simulate it. And thinking about the Matrix movie, like, yeah, how did the Matrix simulate smell? Was it actually delivering, neur- like, some sort of uh, chemical that, it, like, in the, the pods that everybody was sleeping inside of? Were they, like, mm. being injected with some sort of chemicals to make the smells real? Anyway, just just another thing to think about with that movie but that's Uh kind of tangential to what you were saying um i do agree like smell is the 
sense that humans have become most disassociated from right. since the advent of civilization. Right. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that people don't like poop. Like, they really hate it. Oh, yeah. To the point where we can't even have outhouses anymore, which, by the way, are the most ecologically sound way of getting rid of waste. Sure. We have to flush it down the river into the ocean now. So it goes far, far away where we never have to see it or smell it again. No, return like, all those goodies to the earth, man. Yeah, like, yeah, the earth on. needs it. Yeah. Like, we need it in the soil, not in the water. It causes so many problems in the water, whereas it creates, like immense health benefits for plants in the soil mm -hmm. um and if we can tolerate a bit of stinky smell every now and then i think the world would be much better for it but it's not just that like there's plenty of other odd smells in the world like the mushrooms we were smelling very weird not yeah. exactly a bad smell just like kind of out of our normal realm of what we'd smell like right like, flowers, obviously, are a great smell, but they're only around for a couple months, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so it, there's just such a variety of things to experience, and that absolutely does paint more of a picture. Um, and, and I think, like, really creates those strong memories. Like, smell is one of those things that, that I think people cite most as creating strong memories for them. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it colors and informs your reality. So... If you're talking about what I want to remember, you know, and, and like all of these factoids that you're, that are in this book or that are in, or, you know, this, this great, uh, uh, emotional experience I have with a TV show or whatever, you know, all of that, it's, it's black and white in a world of color, you know, <laughs> and it's, it, yeah. it, and, and part of that world of color is, is smell. And yeah, I, 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 you know, I mean, we've we've said this many times on the show. You know, we're sanitizing ourselves to death. You know, but <laughs> yeah, well, certainly we're not living the way that we were meant to live. Right, right. But I, I think that that missing the you know, a it's important to understand that everything written down does not encapsulate the totality of existence. You know, like that's important. Yes. Yeah. And actually, a lot of things that are very important to our I guess if you want to say like a spiritual realm, you can't exactly write those down. No. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. No, totally. Totally. Um, and, and, and again, I think a lot of people actually really miss this, especially people, boy, if you're hot on the Bible, Christian or whatever, if you're hot on the Bible, I don't think people realize the importance of smell, how much smell is brought up throughout the Bible, you know, because it, it is a, it is a component. Yeah, I, I would existence. say another component of that is also music. You know, yeah, yeah. like music is not necessarily word. It's it's sound, but it's not words. No, right. It's right. more of an emotional language. Yeah, you, you picked up on it exactly. Yes. And that's, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like your ears, like I said, I was very it's similar to... I mean, there's a vibration that occurs, you know, through the sound waves, and that's what translates into sound that you, you know, that 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 burrows into your brain, right? Um, but it's it's still a very direct path that ends up happening, you know, from eardrum to brain. Yeah, it's and, actually quite fascinating if you research the science of it. Like, mm -hmm. there's little hairs in your ear yes. that I'm sure everybody's heard about this before because you get the scare tactic when you're a teenager, like. Don't listen to music too loud or you're right. going to make yourself go deaf before right. you're the age of 50 or whatever. 
And like these little hairs, once they get broken, they don't heal. And that's mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. people just lose their hearing and never like magically gets better. Um, but these little hairs actually have these string-like proteins attached to them. Mm-hmm. And once they move to the side, they pull open, kind of like a chain pulling open a dungeon trap door or something. Right. This this little portal that sends an electrical signal to your brain. Right. It's that direct. Yes. Yeah. So, so the vibrations are pushing those hairs and pulling open those doorways. Right. And there goes the signal. Right. Which is what makes... It's so amazing that the cornerstones of most like ancient ritualistic practice is chanting and usually the scent of something, whatever mm-hmm. that happens mm-hmm. to be. Okay. Uh, and that is because those are the things they go, they go right to the core and, you know, and, and uh, allow for, you know, like, uh, well, anyway, we, we could get lost on what that allows for. But the bottom line is, you know, you that, get past the monkey mind. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. There you go. That's a good, that's, that's a great way of saying it. Uh, so these are so important, you know, uh, and, and I worry that like, we're so confident as a species that like, it's not even a matter of, you know, this article saying it's like, oh, well, we don't even remember what we read. Well, it's not even that. We're just thinking that that all 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 the, the factuality of existence exists in books, which isn't true, <laughs> you know. And, and and that's and I think that finer point is very missed. Um, and people don't talk about reflecting. I mean, they don't even take time to reflect on a walk that they have. You even commented that earlier. It's like, why is everybody talking all the time on these walks? You know, and yeah, <laughs> you don't even take the time to to take things in. You know, uh, uh, they like experience existence itself. What do you got? I mean, anything on that? No, no, you're right. Yeah. So anyway, there, there's our, there's our diatribe that went in a million different directions <laughs> from a simple article about not being able to remember what books you read or, or what you read in a book. Um, now we're at two hours, uh, so <laughs> we did have a story about horror stories. I don't know if you want to get into that or if you want to wrap this one up. We can wrap this one up. Um, I think for the sake of Halloween, we should at least touch on it. Touch on it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. well, it's actually a very simple thing. Um, Basically, what this article is arguing for, link is in the show notes, what this article is arguing for uh, from Popular Science is that horror movies allow you to, allow your brain to essentially war game really uh, 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 scary and tragic scenarios. Yeah, and it's more than horror movies. It's it's going to like um, haunted houses yes. or or like horror um, theme parks or whatever. Right. You know these kinds of experiences, like like haunted New England, is a really popular one mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. here. Um, it's basically just buildings full of actors that come at you with chainsaws and they're dressed up like scary clowns. Right. And um, people who are researching. Uh, the individuals coming out of these experiences, they were saying, like, I learned things about myself. Yes. I I reacted in yes. this way, and now I know how to, like, more more so control my level of excitement in the future. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because if you reflect on your experiences of, like, being terrorized as a child, like being chased around or watching scary movies or going right. to haunted houses, right. like, you remember how how exciting it was. But also scary. Um, 
And learning to control your level of excitement allows you to have more of a conscious choice about what you're going to do in those scenarios in the future. Yeah, I mean, it could very much be almost a survival trait. Um, And I mean, it it gives you, it gives your brain, uh, in fact, they brought up a great example where they're talking about the movie Contagion with um, Matt Damon, Lawrence Fishburne, and and, uh, whoever else, and Kate Winslet, yeah, from 2011. And like they, they did the research on this and basically people reported, oh yeah, I was able to engage the pandemic uh, from a stronger standpoint because they experienced films where that, those similar things, like in Contagion, it was MEV1, um, you know, where that happened. And I think it's very akin to science fiction. You know, I talk, I talk about on the show, I talk about the science fiction method a lot where it's a way of figure okay change is happening all the time new advancements scientific technological medical whatever are happening all the time and how can a person like really process all of these changes that happen so quickly far quicker than they ever happened in you know human humanity's evolution and the way you can do that is through science fiction where it can create a story a narrative that gives you a path of what this could mean to you and I think horror movies can do a very similar thing as far as dealing with, uh, well, you know, survival situations, trauma, all, all kinds of things. What are your thoughts on, on, on that? Yeah, I agree. Um, when you watch a scary movie mm-hmm. or when you're terrified, you know, you're not only thinking about what would I do in that situation, mm-hmm. um, but you're also kind of having that experience in a remote sense. Yes, And so if it were to happen to you in the future, um, you might be able to think through it a little bit more clearly than you would have previously. And and the article actually goes on to talk about how some species of animals actually, like, in certain scenarios, will approach something that scares them, like a predator. Yeah, the gazelle in particular. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. so they were talking initially about um, monkeys peeking into a bag that contained a snake, because monkeys are very afraid of snakes. Right. Snakes are a natural predator to to primates. We're also Um, evolutionary afraid of them. Yeah. We're we're primates. Yeah, at least we (laughs) recognize that they're highly poisonous and deadly. Yeah. Even if they don't eat us, per se. Right. Um. But the the monkeys would, like, go look in the bag. They'd scream and run away. Mm -hmm. And then another monkey would go and do the same thing. And another one. Yes. Um, Gazelles do the same thing with cheetahs. Because, like, a gazelle can't run away from a cheetah every time they cross paths in the wild. It's only when the cheetah's really hungry that it's going to be hunting, you know? So gazelles will oftentimes, like, sleuth on the cheetahs on their behavior just to get a, a better idea of, like, when is a cheetah hungry? When is it not hungry? What right. are its behaviors? What does it do? You know, maybe are, are there any weaknesses that they can take advantage of? Um, so it's an investigative thing for for certain species as well. Also kind of a social bonding experience. Yes. Well, it does bring you closer. You yeah. Know? It, like it really does. And, and I mean, you know, Every or most people have gone through the experience to go to a horror movie in a the theater, you know, and oh yeah, somebody gets scared and reaches over and grabs your arm or something like that, you know. I mean, in a very real sense, it can bring you closer. But yeah, it's almost like the gazelles are watching a horror movie, mm-hmm. you know, of these cheetahs. Like they're doing the very same thing we do, and they're not doing it. I mean, we can get a like a kick, a pleasure out of the you know kind of the the the, the rush, the chemical rush that we get 
from being scared. You know, I think that there is a pleasure that comes within that. Um, but also, you know, and I'm not saying the gazelles do that necessarily. Maybe they do. But uh, it's just amazing to know that other species effectively do watch horror movies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in or their they own put way. themselves voluntarily into scary situations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so it's actually a helpful thing. And this was, reading this story was actually fascinating for me. Because you know what? I've never been the biggest horror fan. This has kind of changed my mind. Like, I, I get it. I mean, granted, I've certainly seen my share of real-life horrors um, in my experience. But, yeah, I've never been the huge... What do you got? Yeah, I think for you it might have been more backwards where you, like, actually experienced horrors and then you watched horror movies yes. afterwards. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for most <laughs> people it's the other way around. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, so so honestly, like, ironically, horror movies don't don't necessarily, like... I feel as far as... Maybe the pleasure centers go, don't always do as much for me, but I'm kind of changed on that, you know, like, and, and this article has actually gone a long way uh, as far as like saying, no, no, like, like now I get it because now I, I consider it similar to the science fiction method. It's just more of the horror method. And um, I think, you know, another, another reason that's become kind of important for me is I could almost see this as spiritual training because I think that, you know, sort of what we were just talking about, about how everybody's seeing everything in a very scientific, materialist fashion, okay? Uh, because, no, it's, if it's in the book, like, it's there or whatever, you know, or we have documentaries that tell us the truth now, you know, and all this jazz, even though, again, there's so many things that, that a movie can't, there's so many senses it can't appeal to. Um, but anyway, now it's like, okay, you know, I think part of the reason that people are uh, like Dean Radin has talked about this, Dr. Dean Radin, where why he thinks people are so into superhero movies because deep down, we know we're capable of doing these things, but we're constantly told by civilization. You can't, but our, you know, inner selves have to express it somehow, you know, like what, what we know we're capable of or what we know is out there or what we know is real. And so we do so through our entertainment uh, because it's the only place we can get away with it because we can't write a science book about it because it'll get laughed away like Emmanuel Vilikovsky or something, right? Even though Carl Sagan would properly say, you know, no, the danger is not Emmanuel Vilikovsky writing the book. The danger is him getting quashed, right? That's the real problem. Yeah, the censorship that happens. The censorship is the problem. Okay, so entertainment is a place where we can, our deepest thoughts don't have to get censored. And and I think that horror is a way of expressing perhaps realms that we don't normal that, that we're not normally allowed to, at least in the West in the 21st century, to explore. Um, and those are realms that at points in our lives we might have to survive. And so I think horror films can be an incredibly important thing for people to to take in. Do you have anything you want to say on that? Yeah, yeah. I just I appreciated what you were sharing about your personal perspective on horror movies. Mm -hmm. And that kind of made me reflect on, on my experience because like when I was a teenager, I loved horror movies. Yeah, I right. watched them all the time. I was a huge fan of the Saw movies. I know that's really fucked up, but <laughs> like, um, I also found out about the human centipede when I was a teenager and I did like, Oh I, boy. So, so there was this, to mouth. there was this Ass thing to mouth. where right, keep going. 
<laughs> at my high school's library, you could like <laughs> request videotapes or DVDs through mm-hmm. the interlibrary system and they would like ship it to you. You could keep it for a week or two weeks and then ship it back. Right. So it was like renting a movie, but you're doing it through your high school's library. Yeah, yeah. And I did that with with some horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and like I think just as far as like some insight into my psychology at the time, like I was a pretty fucked up kid. Sure. I my family life was highly tumultuous oh yeah um i went through some really dark times right and i think watching horror movies made me feel tough it made me realize how strong i was yeah and how much i had already been through and like only going through something in the saw movie would challenge me Mm -hmm. you know like Mm -hmm. the horrors of everyday life that most people think of Mm -hmm. i've already been through Right, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> that's not going to scare me anymore. Yes. Like, I've seen it all already. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so the horror movies for me at the time was um, was cathartic, you know? Yeah. It's not like I, I really wanted to be psychotic in that way or anything. It was just something that I felt made me feel alive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in a way that, that some other movies couldn't. And, and, like, I stopped watching horror movies for a long time after that. Yeah. Um, but I think recently we've watched a few and, and uh, like Event Horizon, for example. Oh, I, I, that movie kept me up for days when I was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. And we rewatched it and I'm like, oh, that's not that bad. I mean, there's still things in it that are like, whoa, that's extreme. It's kind of disturbing. Yeah, uh, for anybody. But you've become acclimated now. Yeah, yeah. And I think acclimated is different than desensitized because a lot of people worry, and I've heard these arguments, and Christians often make these arguments and so on, even though they have their paranormal activity movies. Those are Christian films, uh, <laughs> apparently. Uh, but, you know, they talk about like desensitization. Um, no, like this is creating, this is very different, especially with watching horror films, because this is, this is allowing you to explore these aspects. In, in a really in a safe environment or in a safe situation, safe mm-hmm. scenario, because mm-hmm. it's it's on the screen. It's not the real world. Um, people who want to take this stuff into the real world, all right, that's a whole other thing. And the horror movies didn't make them do that. Okay, it's just like yeah, it's just like money doesn't make somebody evil. No, the person was already fucked up. Okay, money right. just allowed them to 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 act upon their uh, their intrinsic uh, desires. I guess I'll say. Though, as the Japanese say, money is a dirty thing. Well, sure, and and that that's a complex conversation, and I'm <laughs> not going to disagree with them. I'm not disagreeing uh, with you either. Yeah, right. So, but but that's that's my point is that you know just like saying oh well you know like watching Rambo movies makes somebody violent that's nonsense. Yeah, no okay? way. Like yeah, it's just it's just not true. So, no. If anything, you can say that these horror movies are a sort of nightmarish uh expression they're they're like a a lucid dream mm-hmm. of the darkest recesses of human psychology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and bringing that to fore is just revealing to the majority of us like what in our collective consciousness exists that is like dark that is yeah has experienced fear has experienced murder and disgust and yeah. like all of these negative dark things yeah um it's it's just 
you know, things that already exist within us, we get to experience. Some people, unfortunately, experience it more than others. Yes. Um, and, you know, we still have the choice to enact on those things or not. Right. But, like, it's not a direct one-to-one comparison. Like, you don't see somebody shooting on TV and then you think, like, it's time for me to go out and get a gun mm-hmm. and start mm-hmm. shooting people. Um, you know, the human consciousness is just is far more complex than that. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think it's important to, again, bring it back to what we've talked a lot about from the first few minutes you and I started talking about the movie uh, um, Clear Cut that we watched, okay, is that importance of story, that importance of narrative in the information that you're taking in. Um, because at the same time, I want to be clear, okay, there are movies out there, whatever you want to call them, snuff films, all kinds of stuff, like where, okay, now that's a movie just made up by a very fucked up individual and they applied it to celluloid. Like those were actions yeah. that they wanted to take. And often, and this, often that is um, activity removed from context, meaning there really isn't a story. Maybe there's some like loose like opening paragraph or something, or there's some loose thread of some kind, but it's not really a story. It's something without context. It's like pornography, okay? Pornography is the sexual act taken without context, meaning it's a sexual act outside of your own narrative, outside of your own story, and that's where it can become unhealthy, okay? Uh, and, and there are movies, certainly, where that is also true. But great horror films... Where can... a lot of those overlap. Sorry. I was yeah, just no, no, you're right. You're pornography right. and horror, sometimes they do. Overlap. Yeah, you're totally right. You're totally Especially right. Especially in the B area of films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's not to say that, like, oh, I should take in every dastardly, disgusting, horrific thing, you know, so that I can be acclimated to it or something along those lines. No, I'm not saying that. All right. But there are. Because a lot of it's crap. Yeah, because a lot of it's crap and a lot of it's just fucked up people wanting to put fucked up things on screen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like, that's that's a fact. Yep. So, but regardless, the horror genre as a whole, uh, or, you know, or the bulk of the horror genre, um, I think can actually be an incredibly. Like, we. It's something that we're not the only species that would take in this kind of thing. Others do. And it is helpful. It allows you to acclimate. It, it, it allows you to explore, especially today in our, like we said, very sanitized world, it allows you to explore things that maybe your ancestors would have experienced on a weekly, maybe even daily basis, who knows, um, and that you can take in and that can make you, you know, even a, a stronger individual or can allow you to process really traumatic times, you know, like the people who were able to, t- to process the pandemic better, um, you know, and so on. So, uh, yeah, it really sheds a new light on the darkness of horror uh, that I, I thought was just a fascinating article. Um, do you have any more thoughts on this, Elm? No, I, I think we summarized it really well. I mean, I think in a future episode, it might be interesting to explore more of the collective collective consciousness aspect of, mm-hmm. of the horror genre and mm-hmm. how that's kind of born out of human psychology. But... I think we'll, we'll have our chance. I agree with you. We should talk about that. And I think we'll have our chance. Why? Because, because of Alice Cooper and some others, I had to get my hands on a rather large selection of Blu-rays of yeah. horror films <laughs> that we're going to be exploring. Thank uh, you, Alice Cooper, by the way. I, I saw his story on Instagram, which, yeah, Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're there, folks, hey. <laughs> but he was talking about his top five uh, horror movies, his top yeah. five favorite horror movies. Yeah. 
and I had only seen two out of the five. So obviously we have some movies to watch. Yeah, Salem's Lot. Yep. That that according to him, the best ever. So we're 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 in for a ride for sure. Um, <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. Anyway, so I think we can wrap up this episode with that. Fuck, almost two and a half hours here. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a good one. That was a lot of fun. Anyway, Ellen, always great to have you on. Yeah, um, great to be on. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, and uh, uh, well, I don't know what we're going to do now, but uh, it'll be fun, whatever it is. Let's and, watch some spooky movies. Ooh, let's go watch some spooky movies. And you, all of you out there, go ahead and enjoy your Halloween, whatever you're, you're rocking, uh, whatever your, your, your holiday threshold is and movie threshold. And we'll see all of you woo, on the other side.